You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 154. Subscribe hey, to us. Got a web- ah. or, or, you know, maybe first you could subscribe to us if you haven't already. You can hit us up on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you like to find your podcast apps. We're there. If you find a podcast uh, destination and we aren't there, let us know. We'll figure that out. All right. I got my coffee. We're good. I'm drinking it now. And uh, you can go to the website, codingbox.net, and find show notes and ample discussion and coffee. <laughs> on view send your feedback questions and rants to comments of coding blocks yep, you- <laughs> <laughs> leave your coffee at uh, this is going to be a fun episode uh, you can follow us on twitter at coding blocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page with that I am also the caffeinated Alan Underwood I'm great and uh yeah i'm doing pretty good too thanks for asking uh i and i'm michael outlaw all right we don't know who this other guy is we'll we'll get to that this episode is sponsored by datadog the cloud scale monitoring and analytics platform for end-to-end visibility into modern applications all right, and today we are talking recursion, stack overflows, uh, unbound data, tail call optimization, and all sorts of fun stuff. Um, so uh, let's get on with some news. Yeah, and uh, you know, this episode we're going to be talking about uh, recursion and stack overflows and unbounded data and all sorts of other fun stuff. <laughs> I'm not biting. I'm not doing it. Come on. Come on, <laughs> all day. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, as we always like to do, uh, we like to you know take a moment to say thank you to those that uh, took time out of their busy lives to leave us a review. So from iTunes, we have Ripco fifty five and JLo one fifteen. All right, and on Audible, which you can leave reviews on, uh, we got underscore one T Marnu and Ian. So thank you very much. That's awesome. Yep, and one T actually left a review over there because Outlaw said the name right on a previous episode. So, all right, so we got a double. That's that's awesome. So thank yes. you. Because I left out the underscore. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Now that's we're not going to get a third one because Joe had to go and mess it up by saying the underscore. That's right. I got a minor amount function today. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, we're talking about recursion, uh, which is a fun and interesting topic, I think. Uh, maybe. Uh, we'll, we'll remains to be seen. Uh, we'll, we'll make a decision here at the end of the episode. Uh, first, I guess we've got to talk about what recursion is. And uh, just high level, it's a method of solving a problem by breaking the problem down into smaller instances of the same problem. Which is an awkward definition because nine times out of ten, maybe nine times out of nine, when a programmer talks about recursive solutions, they're talking about methods that call themselves. That's kind of like the telltale, you know, kind of um, symptom <laughs> that you can see here. Uh, and it, it's not a great definition because sometimes you can have like indirect functions that call the functions that call the same original function or whatever. So that's why the, you know, the definition gets a little wonky. But for the most part, you can just think of this like shorthand functions that call themselves. And right. the most famous algorithm in all the land, if you Google for recursive functions, is going to be the Fibonacci sequence. Is it not factorial? Factorial is a pretty, it's a pretty popular one too. Really? But I think, yeah, Fibonacci also takes it to the next level, right? It's a little bit more complex. Yeah, and there's a reason that I like to talk about Fibonacci first, and there's a reason why that, and uh, we'll get to that. But um, there's some problems with Fibonacci that uh, can be solved. 
So it's like a nice way to kind of walk you through just the, the whole world of recursion with just one function. So uh, if it weren't for recursion and maybe like story pointing, uh, I don't know if anyone <laughs> would even remember the Fibonacci sequence. I don't know what it's good for. <laughs> I want to know. Let me know. That's <laughs> near and dear to our hearts right now too, right? The story pointing. And if you don't know what we're referring to, congratulations, you win. Um, <laughs> if you do, then you are deep into the world of agile scrum planning. Yeah. And I, I'm just kidding, of course, too. It, uh, there's other useful stuff you're familiar with, like the golden ratio stuff, um, where you listen to tool, uh, then you're familiar with, uh, <laughs> that kind of spiraling effect that you can get from these numbers because, uh, the deal is you add, uh, the previous number to the next number and then you carry that forth. So it's a sequence. So, uh, the, it goes basically starts with zero, one. <clears throat> the next number is going to be zero plus one, which is one again. Next number is one plus one. So you get two. And one plus two, uh, three. Then uh, it starts getting bigger from there. So it's got like a kind of a slow ramp up. So you can kind of imagine it's got this big, nice curve that will get drawn. Uh, two plus to, three is five. Three plus five is eight. Technically, though, it has to start from zero and one, not from zero. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's so what absolutely. It said. Oh, Otherwise, I, it would just always thought, be zero. Okay. I, miss, I thought you, you have to seed zero. it with two numbers. Right. It's always. Yeah, in addition. So zero, it literally starts zero, one, one, two, three, five, eight. And the numbers just keep getting bigger from there because five plus eight is 13 and so on. Uh, and so, you know, if, uh, it doesn't really sound that bad, right? If I say like, Hey, what's the hundredth one? Like we could do that on paper in less than a minute, you know, it wouldn't be that bad to, to do it. So, um, what's nice about this solution is if you look at the code for it, it's uh, really nice. And I know this is going to be rough, and I tried really hard with the notes to try and not have these really tough, <laughs> hard-to-understand algorithms. But uh, the gist is, if n is less than 1, return n. Otherwise, return the function of n minus 1 plus function of n minus 2. So... Really, when we said if n is less than one, basically, if n is zero, return it. Oh, uh, this should be less than or equal to one. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> but yeah. it's also not like n minus one, right? It, it in term, it, it's like it's positioned in the set. So if this was like a race syntax, then it would be like, no, no, he's correct. Yeah, because well, if so, you want because well, when you get number, into like a big number, it's not going to be you know thirteen minus one or no, no. So it's the function. Two. It's, it's the, the function. function. Of, yeah. So uh, here's an example. Maybe this will help. We say, what's the third Fibonacci number? Then what we do is we say, is three less than or equal to one? No. So it's going to be the Fibonacci uh, of, so I guess you could say like of uh, index two plus the yeah, inde- okay. uh, Fibonacci of one. Okay. Yeah. Like if we were to go to back to an array index, like those minus ones, it's not minus one from the number. It's it's his position in the, the index in the array. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, but there's no array. Well, yeah, yeah I know, but I'm thinking like if you had an array of Fibonacci numbers, right? Like that. <clears throat> Again, this is why I went to a bigger number like 13, not three, because you you can't get to the previous two numbers in the sequence by going 13 minus one and 13 minus two, right? Yeah. It, it you know because the previous two numbers in the sequence are eight and 13. No, so I mean I think said simpler, if you want the fifth element in the Fibonacci sequence, then you have to add 
the fourth Lee element plus the third element. So the element position minus one plus the element position minus two um, element positions, right? You're dealing with element positions, not the actual values. Yeah. So sorry. This is like even this is like the simplest uh, algorithm you find a recursion, and it's hard, kind of hard to talk about. So uh, that's unfortunate. So don't worry, we're not going to do too many more of those. We're not going to try to explain like more short or whatever. Should we point out um, that the third element wasn't three though? Uh, the third element is not three. But man, we're going to get so hung up on the numbers if we try to do this. Uh, yeah. I think everyone's going to be screaming in their cars if they still have cars. I don't know. Right. <laughs> Who knows? It's been a while since I've been outside, y'all. Uh, <laughs> all right so what's nice about this is it's the elegant solution when you see it it's uh, essentially a one-liner especially if you're working with trees or graphs and you need to do like a depth first and first hole of a tree which means basically um going down to the bottom of the tree and either adding those numbers up or filtering or doing whatever you need to do um then it's like a two-liner if you do that with a while loop you're going to need another data structure like a stack or a queue in order to keep track of your your place in line and so it just gets a little messy. And so, you know, suddenly instead of having two lines, you've got 11 and uh, it just goes on from there. And th- those algorithms for graphs and uh, for, and trees and linked lists and anything else that kind of has like a unknown amount of data when you start gets really nasty if you try to do it uh, without recursion. So uh, that's kind of the benefit there is uh, certain types of problems just fit really well. And I, I forgot to get a list of them. But uh, pretty much any of the fancy sorting algorithms, quick sort, merge sort, anything you've ever seen with a tree. So like balancing AVL trees, um, search trees, uh, tries, which I mispronounced. But any of that stuff, that's, those are all going to be tree algorithms. Uh, anything with a, a linked list um, can be written as a recursive function. And uh, you know what the opposite of that looks like there is you basically do a while loop with a counter and kind of set it to next, next, next. So you don't have to do it. Uh, recursively in fact i'm not aware of any problems that you have to do recursively i think there's always an iterative solution it's just gonna be nasty if you go google uh merge sort iteratively you'll see what i mean by nasty uh now the downside is uh they're tricky to write uh it's it's one of those things where you have to be really careful with the details and so maybe your number of lines isn't that big but it's really easy to mess up and end up with a essentially an infinite loop where you just kind of uh, so, pop your stack. Which will so be hold popping. up real quick, just to to ask when you said they're tricky to write, you're talking about the recursive functions right now because you had mentioned iterative approaches. You're saying mm-hmm. that the recursive methods are the tricky bits to write. Yes. Yeah. So it can almost look like magic when you see it. Right. Um, if uh, I'm remembering, like um, back in the day, computer science class when we took our test on paper for me. Uh, they would give you like a recursive function. It'd be like five lines. They'd be like, what does this do? And it'd be like, oh, crap. Oh, okay. <laughs> <sighs> All right. And, uh, you know, it'd scribble up half the paper and end up like kind of indenting every time I go down. And so like pencil marks, zeros and ones. And, and it'd be like, uh, it, re- it like <laughs> times negative one or something. It uh, reverses a list or something, something kind of dumb and trivial like that. But trying to get that from the code is impossible. And that's, how, you know, Kind of how we recode is like we tend to read the lines and then figure out what it means, uh, even more so sometimes than the function names because function names can be kind of bad. So the recursion is kind of the opposite where it's like, I can't tell what the heck you're doing by the code. <laughs> like, just, just give me a good name here because seeing this, you know, thing calling itself and mildly tweaking the parameters is, is just tough to derive the meaning from. 
It gets to be inception like. So I think if someone showed me like a, say a quick sort uh, algorithm and asked me what it did, <laughs> I'd be like, okay, let me bust out that pen and paper again. It gets uh, to be inception like. Yeah, when totally. When you're looking totally. at it. And it's hard to derive the meaning just from seeing the function calls calling themselves and looking at the base case, but we'll get, uh, we'll get to that too. Uh, so I uh, wanted to mention that there are a couple languages that don't really have traditional loops, like for loops, while loops, uh, they only have recursion. And uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. So I, I took a look at what that looks like. And basically they'll you take some sort of function that uh, the applies the visitor pattern. So kind of apply that function for each piece of the data. I just thought it was kind of neat. And if you imagine a world without for loops, uh, what that would look like, I imagine you probably get pretty good with recursion pretty quickly. <laughs> so uh, just a couple other high, high level bullet points to hit and then we'll, we'll get into the weeds. Uh, so common algorithms and the data structures. So we mentioned unbounded data like trees and stuff. And when I say unbounded, what I mean is like, if I give you a root node and say, how big is this tree? I don't really know. Right? You have to kind of iterate through that or else you have to kind of cheat and add some stuff to the algorithm. Uh, same thing with, uh, you know, a lot of graphs, depending on how you implement it. Uh, and if you've got an algorithm or a data structure where some other worker is like adding things to that tree while you're operating on it, um, then it's certainly the definition of a data structure that's kind of changing out from under you as opposed to an array, which you can say, okay, it's got a hundred. It's only ever going to have a total of a hundred. Uh, there we go. Those are dynamic data structures. Yeah, and you're basically saying the input could be any size. You just don't know, as opposed to like an array where it's all typically a fixed length in any sort of language. Yep. So um, one thing I've been uh, kind of looking at is uh, sorting algorithms because they kind of break this pattern because it's a lot of times sorting algorithms, you're literally looking at sorting an array. But uh, there's... Uh, recursion is very uh, popular, <laughs> like overwhelmingly so in the good algorithms for sorting. And uh, the reason that they're popular for that, even though it's about a data set, is because uh, sorting algorithms ha- tend to have this um, breaking down effect, where at the heart of any sort of uh, sorting algorithm, all you're really doing is comparing two numbers and saying which one goes uh, first. And then you kind of up-level and compare you know, two sets of numbers and go through each one. But ultimately, the, the your basic unit of work is, is this one bigger than that one? So these are examples where the problem of, you know, getting these uh, numbers in order boils down to a bunch of really small, is this one bigger than that one's? Yeah, if you recall, we've actually, <clears throat> the, the, um, we, we have had a few episodes where where recursion has come up in the past, but it was like kind of, I don't know, tangential to whatever the topic was. So uh, for example, we we've talked about them in regards to in episode 89. Uh, we've talked about, you know, forms of recursion that uh, I'll save for, uh, you know, as we get to it here later in the notes, but um, in episode 89, which was, you know, in regards to space and time complexity and the impacts that can be had there as well as, um, what you're talking about now with like search and, and uh, um, different data structures, we talked about it as it relates to trees and how recursion was often like some of the, some of the tree concepts were difficult because recursion was often, you know, uh, uh, a 
pattern or an algorithm used to even work with the tree and specifically search was one of the examples that we had gave. But you could also think about like, um, what was the, was it the B tree where like it was, uh, constantly like resorting itself, you know, which was always doing comparisons to be like, Hey, are you, are you, uh, you know, which side of this, which shot side of the branch should you fall on? Are you greater than or less than? Yeah, I recently tried to program a red black tree, and uh, <laughs> man, it's kind of hard. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> also, I went and got so like the algorithm from oh, poor Jersey. <laughs> I know, I'm so tired, guys. I'm so sorry, <laughs> terrible episode. Um, not the coffee's kicking in though; it's gonna be good. Uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, it was difficult. So um, it was difficult because I was trying to be lazy and not read about it. So I was like, oh, just show me the the algorithm. And I missed part. Uh, so, yeah, I ended up down a rabbit hole for lack of reading comprehension. So uh, that's the deal with sorting algorithms when you kind of see them. And I wanted to mention that because dynamic programming, which is like, it's like when people talk about those horrible whiteboarding fang interviews, uh, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, uh, it's usually because they're talking about dynamic programming problems, which are, are essentially, I think pretty much everyone agrees that they're the hardest kinds of programming problems that you can find. And they, uh, end up, um, having these kind of difficult problems that you can solve, uh, in a decent and efficient way by breaking the problem down into smaller pieces and avoiding duplicate calculations. So remember when we talked about Fibonacci, we said, uh, the Fibonacci, uh, number for uh, the fifth Fibonacci number is the fourth plus the third. And then the, when you go look at the fourth, it's the third plus the second. You can see right there, you're going to be calculating the value for three twice. And looking at the value for three is going to calculate the number for two, which is also, so it's, uh, it's happening for four. So it's doing redundant work all over the place. And uh, dynamic programming is a, a good solution that we should probably have an episode on one day that uh, kind of looks at reducing those uh, duplicate combination, combinations um, calculations uh, by pulling a couple tricks that can be really hard to see at first and then seem really elegant by the time you're done. But I'll have a list of uh, dynamic program problems that you can look at. Because if you're thinking about interviewing for Fang, and we've got a list of Fang companies that uh, are Fang, Fang-like companies that are hiring, then uh, get to practicing. And also a list of them that weren't that we talked about last episode. Only like, it was only like two. It was like Apple and Google and everyone else is like. Netflix Netflix. was like the worst. Netflix was bad too. Yeah. Yeah, They were like the the worst one about not wanting remote work. If I remember correctly. It's only half a thing. By the way, I don't know that I'd, I'd ever heard the term dynamic programming because I'm not out doing leak code challenges and all that kind of stuff. Like, like Jay Z does in his early hours of the day. Um, but I looked it up because I was like dynamic program. It sounds like something you do where you just, you know, you go figure things out and, and you're not writing, you know, empirical code for everything. Um, but it's not that it's, it's actually tied deeply to recursion. A simple definition of it is dynamic programming is mainly an optimization over plain recursion. So I think what you just said, Joe, and where this might make sense for people is, those problems that you're doing in leak code is there's sort of an obvious path to doing recursion, right? Like Fibonacci. Okay. Well, I know that I need to pass in, um, this element position minus one, this element position minus two, 
and just call the same function over and over, right? But when you do that, that's why I say it's horribly inefficient because you're building up a call stack and all this kind of stuff. And dynamic programming is you're trying to find alternate ways to get the same result without using so much processing and space, right? Like that's really what it boils down to. Yeah, and uh, and there's several different techniques to do it, and there's a couple of technical qualifications for di- dynamic programming. It, it, yeah, it sounds really general. You say dynamic programming is like, yeah, I do that all the time, right? Yeah, uh, but <laughs> then you I look do. at yeah, it's a, it's a terrible terrible name, but I think it's probably older than a lot of other things uh, that we associate now with dynamic. But uh, one technique for getting rid of those duplicate values is just to cache them, so called uh, memoization, uh, for example. Um, so you say, well, hey, I already did this calculation, so let me just store it in a uh, hash table, and then anyone else who comes along and needs to do this calculation, they can just look up my value because I've already done it. Um, but even <laughs> it goes on from there. That's like the most basic technique for dynamic programming, and then it just gets weirder from there. And that's always easy for people to be like, well, what if you've got a billion numbers? Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, right? That's, yeah, totally. that's the first thing that somebody's going to say to you. Like, if you come up with a solution for, for doing that caching, well, well, now you've exceeded the cache. Now what? <laughs> yeah, totally, totally, totally. Yeah, so if you look at a lot of prime number generators, like this is a common technique for them, well, and, I mean, but it absolutely runs into that. And cache was like one of the the two hardest things in computer science, right? I mean, it's uh, you know na- naming things, cache invalidation, and off by one errors. <laughs> yep. But uh, in this case, um, cache is kind of a bad word for it. So I, I probably shouldn't use it because uh, memoization is a technical term because in this case, there's no you never have to invalidate. So it's the technique is similar to caching, but it's uh, there's no invalidation. It's always the same. Uh, the numbers are the results. same, okay, or the fine. answer is always the same. Given fine. two inputs or however many inputs, you always get the same output. So my joke doesn't exactly work, but I tried to make it fit. Okay, <laughs> I'm sorry. Man. I had I'm parameters, in a mood. and I was trying to work within that space, and you know that I did the best I could. Man, I'm sorry. Well, actually, I'm the one who said cache uh, incorrectly, so. <laughs> I'm going to double will actually and swing it back because that's where I'm at. <laughs> need more video game time, y'all. Yeah, what you need to do that. is to take a trip. That's what you need. We need. We all need. Like, let's take this trip on the road. Let's go. Coding Blocks is going to go to Hawaii, and uh, <laughs> yes. we're going to record from there. Do you know? We need to record from there. Do Did you know? Like, uh, they don't allow like loud laughing in Hawaii. Oh, awesome! No, no what, just, what's the? It's just a low ha. <laughs> oh my gosh! I thought you were for real. I was like, that sounds good, right? Oh, now. I do. I could see it. It was all over. Oh man! <laughs> I, 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 am I that see through now? That's um, from Lars. Thank you, Lars. That was awesome. <laughs> but yeah, talk to the accountant. Maybe, maybe we can swing something there, right? <laughs> we need to go. <laughs> All right, so um, to to take it down a, a level and get get a uh, get deeper here, I want to talk a little bit about how functions work, and this is going to touch on and overlap on many things that we've talked about, um, particularly in like the kind of first years of the podcast. It'll be fun to to revisit some things because you can't talk about recursion without talking about the call stack. Finally, we get to it. Yes, we did an episode on value uh, on uh, was it. Value types versus reference types, or was it the heap versus the stack? Oh, yeah, that was way, that was like in the top first five episodes somewhere in there. Yep. Yeah. Well, the boxing and unboxing episode, I believe it was. Oh, yeah. yeah. We talked about um, heap versus stack. 
which yep. that might have been like episode one. Nope. Eyes for Interface was Oh, one. that's right. And maybe it was episode two then. Yeah, it was up there. Yeah, but, yeah. But yeah, it, we've Back definitely talked about it. Yeah, so uh, the just here is that programming languages generally have the notion of a call stack. And that got me thinking, it's like, do all programming languages have a call stack? And uh, the answer is no. Um, there's a couple that kind of don't that do things in a little bit different ways. But even those, if you look at them, it's a guy. It's kind of the same thing. Right? <laughs> they just don't so, call it the same. Yeah, and uh, let's see. I got this in the notes somewhere. Let me find it. Okay, yeah. There's actually an uh, implementation of Python called Stackless Python. Um, and it's basically like Python with a whole lot of limitations on what you can do and what you can't do. <laughs> but uh, it runs really well in some environments. Uh, Haskell, uh, Haskell, however you say it. Haskell. Uh, yeah, Haskell. I'd probably say it wrong. Uh, <laughs> it uses a technique called graph reduction, where it, uh, basically it ties into the kind of lazy, uh, lazy evaluation mechanism they have where things aren't evaluated until they need to be. But it's, uh, it's not too far off, um, conceptually. Uh, assembly, if you think about like, if you're doing stuff with assembly, like there's literally no call stack, you know, you're just kind of, responsible for doing that type of stuff. Now you end up kind of re-implementing the stack because you'll do things like, Hey, um, jump to this address. And when you're done, jump back to here and, or you'll save kind of the, the, the address for where to come back to, to a register or something. And so that kind of, uh, acts a little bit like what we're talking about here. So, and, uh, Oh, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to like, uh, circle back on uh, that previous comment. Cause like it was, Killing me. I had to go back and find it. It was episode two that we talked about boxing and unboxing. All right. And it was specific. Uh, you know, we talked about it specifically in the, in the way of like how .NET deals with it, but boxing and unboxing is just like a general concept, regardless of language. That's good to know. Yeah, totally. There's some things that just pretty much all languages have in common. And that's, uh, that's one of them. And uh stackless C was the last one I want to mention because uh, it was really cool how it worked. It basically just goes through and line uh, inlines your functions. So if you have this function that calls that function, it's going to go get that function and basically slam the code into wherever you called it as if it was all just typed in line, um, which is uh, interesting, but does not work with recursion at all. What did you call that one? Stackless? Stackless C. Stackless C. Okay. Yep. You can literally imagine like the compiler goes through and it's like, oh, here's the function call. Let me go grab that code and copy paste it into here. Yeah. And, you know. So you could see that it would also make for like a very large assembly by the time you're done. because. Yep that same function call has been repeated in number of times in, you know, in that final product. Yep. That's pretty gnarly. So basically, unless you're working with one of those, you know, few things I mentioned, or maybe a couple other missed, your language has a call stack. So JavaScript, Python, PHP, C++, uh, C sharp, they've all got the notion of a call stack. And uh, if you remember a stack, it's a data structure that's optimized. uh, Well, I mean, it's built all around, Last in, first out. So, um, what's a what's a good example of like in real life? Last in, first out. A stack of plates. Stack of pancakes. Stack of okay, Let's yeah. do pancakes. And you eat the top pancake first. Even yeah, though it was it's the last, last one you put on the plate. Yeah, it was the last one added to the stack, but it was the first one you you pulled off to eat. Okay, yeah, I like it. Or like a, a glass of water. If you sip from the top, <laughs> the water at the bottom of that cup has been there the longest. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it depends on how voracious you are with it. <laughs> swinging that <laughs> cup around. I don't know. You don't stir your water? What kind of <laughs> madman are you? 
Yeah. That sounds not, gross I, to even not say. Shaken. shaken, not stirred. Ugh, gosh. So anyway, so that's literally the stack, and that's what it means here too. The deal with the call stack specifically is every time you call a function, a frame is added to the stack. And frame is a special term here. And uh, what the frame means is uh, essentially a bucket of memory that's got a few uh, items in it uh, in common across all these languages and sometimes some metadata with it that we're going to largely ignore. But the gist of it is, is it's going to have in uh, space allocated for all the arguments coming into your function. So if you've got uh, value types like integers, it's going to be 32 or 64 bits allocated for each one of those. So if you take eight arguments, you're going to have 32, 64 times eight. Now, if you have reference types like, um, you know, depending on your language, uh, uh, let's call it heaps or nodes or objects or whatever, then those are just going to be pointers. So it's still going to be roughly the same size of 32 or 64, you know, each. Uh, local variables, any function, any variables that you are going to be calling in there need to be allocated uh, in that call stack. And then finally, you're going to need a return address of where to hop back to when that function's done. So you imagine we've got Fibonacci. It's got one argument that takes, uh, you know, that, that index spot. And so every time we call Fibonacci, Fibonacci, <laughs> it adds a frame to the call stack, including uh, 32 bits for an integer, call it a return address, which let's just say 32 bits to keep it uh keep it simple uh local variables we don't have any so that's it uh 64 bits for every frame so if we call um uh call fibonacci with uh let's say the number three then it's going to be uh because you know roughly because of the the deal where every fibonacci call results in two more calls we can call it three to the second um which is nine <laughs> so there's gonna be nine frames added to your call stack each with 64 bits wait hold up no it would still you would just call fibonacci if you if you passed it three it would call itself two more times to get all the way down or maybe three more times so it it shouldn't be three squared right so that's the runtime of it there might be some kind of um some funkiness near the edges there but three is going to pop put one on for two and for one um so now we're up to three in the call stack and then two is going to do for one and zero, which are still going to get called and they're going to exit immediately. They don't add anymore. So now we're up to five. Oh, if you're calling it twice. I'm sorry. Yeah. I got you. Okay. And then, got it. Um, oh, I got God, it. I, I think I made a mistake. But anyway, yeah. So anyway, <laughs> the being around nine. Um, and that's just, the, you know, roughly the, the runtime of it. So, uh, you know, it may be off by one or two because of whatever, but uh, that's generally the, the shape of the algorithm there. So I... To go back to what you just said, the reason it makes sense. So I wasn't thinking about it like this. I think I had pre-optimized it in my head. Mm-hmm. Basically, what what Joe's saying is the reason why there's going to be more frames there is because if you say you're trying to get the Fibonacci for the fifth element, right? The way that you do that is you would call the Fibonacci for the fourth element plus the Fibonacci for the third element, that would give you the answer to the fifth. And so by calling those two functions separately, that means you're now doing um, Fibonacci a fourth, and then it's going to automatically go do the third, second, and first. And then if you say plus the Fibonacci of the third, then it's automatically going to do three, two, one as well. And that's why he's getting to that number of frames that's stored. 
So yeah, and there's redundancies. So yeah. When I do four, it's going to do three and two. When I do um, three, it's going to do two and one. So you see the right there, I did two twice. Right. And so each one, so 25 roughly operations for uh, 25 items on the call stack for, uh, for Fibonacci of five. And that's, and that's if you're taking the pure definition of Fibonacci, which is it's the function of that position minus one element plus the function of that position minus two elements, right? So that's taking that raw equation. Yeah, and even if I call like, hey, Fibonacci of zero, it's still going to result in the frame going on the stack, and it's going to pass in the number of zero. It's going to do the operation, and it's going to return. Right. So it's going to it's going to be done there, but it's still a frame on the stack. And, and so just so you know why I was confused when you said nine or whatever initially is the pre-optimization in my head was, well, you'll just do the one Fibonacci and just go all the way down from the number that you called it from and then keep track of those numbers. But that's not the true definition or the, the mathematical equation for how Fibonacci works. So, so if you disregard how you know that you could store those numbers to use later and you say, Hey, what's the true nature of this? Then that's how you get more frames on the stack. Yep. And, uh, I think I've got a good picture here. Oh, I swear saying? that we, I swear that we've talked about this too. And I'm trying to remember, I'm like over here racking my brain, trying to remember what the episode was where we had talked about like the, the, um, you were talking about like the amount of space, you know, that was used for like, you know, that, that frame. And I could have sworn that we had talked about the different types of memory. Uh, and that was, you know, that part where that came up. I think it was yep. garbage collection. I believe that was the, it was one of the first few episodes as well. It, it it was back in that same time period. We talked about boxing. We also talked about the heaps and the stacks and all that stuff and garbage collection and all that. So, yeah. Any rate. Yep. And um, so when the function returns, basically we peel the item off of the stack and we pass its value back into the function that called it and basically with the address uh, location of where to pick back up at. Um. And what's really nice about that and is uh, the reason that all these languages uses it is it it's really quick deallocation. It's not like the heap where you've got garbage collection and you know all this stuff and things are dynamically sized. Like we know with every frame call exactly how much space there's going to be. And when we pop that thing off the stack, we set the pointer down. We don't go delete the memory. We just literally set one number down. So it's constant time and it lets us quickly reclaim memory that we used immediately as soon as it's not used anymore. So hyper efficient, which is a smart way of doing things. Uh, so, uh, have you ever seen a call stack? <laughs> uh, you mean have we seen the call stack or the error? <laughs> the yeah, exactly. Error. That's immediately where my mind goes. Is uh, I'm used to seeing call stacks and thinking about the call stack whenever there's an error, and you'll see like this error happened on line whatever, which was called from line whatever, which was called from blah blah blah. blah. And if you're in Java, it's going to be like a thousand of those. Uh, all the way down. Uh, if you're in a uh, sane language, then it's going to be much fewer. Um, and, and, and you know what? Based off what you're saying here, if you ever hear the term stack trace, you're debugging or something like that, it's truly just stepping through what you have in the frames of a stack and showing you what happened in each one of those function calls, right? So, yep. And uh, you know, it's uh, you can actually, every language I've ever worked with, you can actually just access this call stack. So if you ever want to do, uh, you know, you got a board ringing Sunday or something, you could uh, write an application that uh, prints out the call stack at every step of the way. You can actually see, like, 
exactly how that works, exactly what's been allocated, exactly what the values are at every step. And that's another thing important too for why debuggers work the way they work is because the values in the frame, once they, you know, you kind of up level and go to the next one, they're set. They're all value types or pointers. So you can go back in time and inspect the values that were passed into your function because they're basically just locked there on the frame. Now, you know, those reference reference types get a little weirder. Um, so that can be hard to do, but uh, that's kind of a big part of uh, the debugging workflow when you're working with the debugger. And that's why you can kind of hop back and forth and say, Hey, wait, how did this get passed in? Or, you know, you can kind of uh, iterate and jump back and forth. Uh, you can even sometimes drag that pointer back in time and say reprocess starting from here uh, because of the stack. And when the last frame is completed on your call stack, your program's done. That's literally how you know when a program has completed, there's nothing left to do. <coughs> so that's pretty cool. Uh, so the stack size is really limited. And I looked it up C-sharp. Uh, it's going to default to one megabyte uh, for 32 and four megabytes for 64. And you, you can change those values, kind of a tweak in your system. But uh, everyone on the Internet is going to try and talk you out of that, probably for good reason. Uh, I looked at a bunch of other languages, too. One megabyte pretty much across the board. It's like a standard size. I don't know why. Uh, but it's interesting. Now, generally, you don't need that much space on your stack because, you know, well, like we mentioned, 64 bits for Fibonacci. You know, even if you've got eight arguments, it's, you know, eight times 32 plus one, whatever. So it's not exactly the big numbers. We're generally talking about bits. You don't want to have functions that take in a kilobytes worth of pointers. Right. And and to what you said earlier, that stack frame size is just based off the local variables within the method and pointers to big data outside that method. So it, in theory, I mean, even if you have a horribly inefficient set of methods, it's still not going to be that big, right? Even if you have hundreds of them, it's insignificant, right? You're not going to even come close to one megabyte of memory space. Okay. It, it was killing me. So I had to find it. It was episode 95 that we had, with that we had talked about the different types of the memory and, uh, Specifically at the time, like we were only focusing on like, like three main segments of it, uh, the, the heap space, then the, uh, uh, the static and global space, and then the stack space. Technically there's a fourth one, which is like the, the text space where like the actual code itself sits, uh, you know, that has, that contains all the instructions, but yeah, there's, um, and in fact, there's, there's a question on, uh, Quora about like the difference between the stack versus the heap space. And, you know, the stack being like where all the local memory is. So like if you, if you go into that function, like, like let's say this is recurse recursively calling some Fibonacci function, for example, with that memory that you were just talking about and you had a frame added each time, then each time that frame would contain the local would contain space for any local variables used by that method. So if that method had a, a local variable called, you know, I don't know, I, for example, just, it's just an integer, you know, it doesn't take up a lot of space necessarily depending on, you know, what size architecture you're using, but uh, you know, that space would be reserved over and over and over versus the heap that you were just talking about. Like maybe you have uh, like, if you did get more advanced and you had some kind of like um, memoization, uh, you know, thing that you were using to, that was outside of that, 
and, and it was on the heap, then you might be pointing to it. And that's where that would, that would hopefully live on the heap so that it would be addressed accessible from, you know, other places. And then, uh, you know, then there was like the static and global, um, the heap could like come and would grow, but like statics and globals wouldn't. So that'd be the main difference there between those. Yeah. Episode 94. What was the title of that one? Uh, data structures, arrays and array ish. All right. I remember that one. Uh, yeah. So, uh, I mean, if the stack is so big, uh, one megabyte and, uh, the arguments are so small and the return address is so small, <clears throat> then you expect to never have to exceed the boundaries of that, uh, one megabyte boundary. Uh, and yet it happens all the time. And when that happens, you get uh, a stack overflow exception, which literally means that you ran out of room on your stack. It exceeded the boundary. It wasn't able to put the next frame on. Actually, that's incorrect too. Uh, stack overflow means that that's where you go to find the answers to why yeah. you're getting the error that you just got. <laughs> it's the, it's and, literally a website. <laughs> and then you should not copy the answer to that because then uh, the, what is it? The licensing for oh, stack right. overflow is not exactly, we talked about this in the past. It's not exactly wonderful. You have to give so, attribution, I believe is the, is the catch to it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of funky. Yeah, it's it is. Legal. It's weird, but at any rate, all right, moving on. What, what do we got? So, yeah. So now you know why stack overflows happen. Uh, so you never have to Google for that in any ever again. If you ever see a stack overflow exception, it means that you exceeded the boundaries of your stack. So don't even bother. <laughs> you need to look at what your code is doing because it's, uh, essentially an infinite looping by calling function. So it's never going to finish. And that, uh, generally only happens when in these kind of recursive situations because, you'd have to really have a lot of nested functions in order to hit a megabyte uh, with these uh, small uh, small bits. Yeah, and, and to sort of tag on to what you just said there, to hit the stack overflow thing, that means you have to keep calling functions that ha- that aren't returning yet, right? Like they're calling another function and that adds to the stack. And then it calls another function that adds to the stack. And that's why you typically only see it in recursion because – the whole infinite thing, like what you said a second ago, typically, if even if you had uh, an infinite loop, you're not going to get a stack overflow error because you're not adding more things to the stack, right? Like, let's just say you're doing a calculation in there. Unless you're calling a function that isn't executing within that loop, then you're not, you're not infinitely adding to the stack. Even if you call 20 functions in a row in, inside your infinite loop, it's going to execute that function, which means it's going to add it to the stack. It's going to get its result, pop it off the stack, and then do the next for the same one. So it's it's kind of hard without doing recursion to blow up your stack. Yep, that doesn't mean that you know you might have a library underneath that ends up calling it. But every time you see Stack Overflow, it's because functions kept calling and not completing. And uh, no matter how hard you try, not even Java, I, c- I cannot imagine exceeding one megabyte just with like. <laughs> functions calling functions calling functions and so um right. that's one of the reasons people say don't try to optimize your code by getting rid of functions so a lot of times when people first hear like oh every time there's a function call uh it uh, allocates memory well crap let's get rid of all the functions and just have one big function with a bunch of if statements that is such a micro optimization uh the <laughs> you're doing so little work there compared to the reability that you're messing up and i bring to you stackless c 
Yeah, there you go. Good luck. Uh, this is essentially what you're doing. You are doing the compiler's good work, and the compiler's much better at it. So, right. uh, and uh, compilers too are really smart. They do things like this. If they see that there's a bunch of little functions, they may maybe they will go inline, or maybe they'll um, you know do do some fancy tricks there in order to kind of keep that stuff resident. And you are mucking with that. You're making it harder for it to do its job by trying to outsmart it. So, as always, we say use a profiler rather than trying to. <laughs> basically if you're trying to improve the speed of some code and you're getting rid of function calls to do that oh boy <laughs> yeah you better have done everything else in the world world first because you're not going to affect the runtime of that exactly. uh, realistically this episode is sponsored by datadog a software as a service based monitoring and analytics platform for cloud scale infrastructure applications logs and more Datadog uses machine learning-based algorithms to detect errors and anomalies across your entire stack, which reduces the time it takes to detect and address outages and helps promote collaboration between data engineering, operations, and the rest of the company. And did you know, like, it's 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 amazing just how uh, widespread Datadog really is. Like, they are truly a thought leader in this space, constantly sharing their wisdom with the world. Uh, they have a great blog where you know it's like hey here's here's how you can monitor kubernetes or docker or uh apache or postgres or insert technology here cuz oh by the way they have over 400 built-in integrations to go along with it making it super simple to use them and if you don't believe why this matters Go back and listen. We had a whole series of episodes that we talked about with the DevOps handbook. And one of the key themes there was you have to have metrics and you have to have monitoring and you have to be able to like react to those situations. Datadog is your easy button there. They've already, they've already figured out how to get that monitor, what metrics matter, right? For whatever your given technology is. And I, I, I double dog dare you. Oh, that's a good pun. I double dog dare you to find a technology, a relevant technology in today's space that Datadog doesn't have a way to monitor. Well, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. So uh, we've typically talked about Datadog in terms of like uh, kind of performance observability and like whether things are running or not, which is super important. We haven't really talked about the stuff they do in the security space. They have over 400 turnkey security integrations, things like Node.js or, or Docker or Kubernetes. I mean, it's actually huge. I mean, so I'm gonna, not going to list all 400. But the things they do on the dashboards they've set up for like various authentication events, threat detection uh, in real time. I mean, uh, this is the kind of stuff that we work with, right? So like me seeing the pages and how they kind of solve some of these problems uh, at uh, kind of a infrastructure level is really cool. And these visualizations are just amazing. So if you're needing uh, observability for security as well, and you do, then you should, I mean, you owe it to yourself to check out what data dogs doing here. It's amazing. Like it, I'm, it never ceases to amaze me. Every time I go poking around and see like what's new with data dog and, and all the new things that they're sharing, like they have, did you know this, that they have geo maps to visualize your app data by location. So if you want to do rum analytics, you could literally look at the world and create little heat maps for like where, where your users are reacting to your application around the world. Like it's it just so many amazing. It's, it's, it's basically like the opposite of a death by a thousand cuts because it's basically like 
a million little things that added up to something just so incredible. And that's Datadog. So go to datadoghq.com slash coding blocks today and start your free 14 day trial. And if you start that trial and you install Datadog's agent, they will send you a super awesome t-shirt. Yeah, and again, uh, you start your free data dog trial uh, to start your monitoring in real time. And the listeners of the podcast will receive a free shirt, just like Alice said. You just got to create one dashboard. Yep, so the way you get there is go to datadoghq.com slash coding blocks. Again, that's datadoghq.com slash coding blocks to get started. All right, so it's that time of the episode where we ask you if you have the time and if you'd like to do something nice, uh, you know, why don't you go leave us a review? If if you want, we've got a helpful link at codyblocks.net slash review. We make it easy. You can either pop over to Audible or iTunes. And, you know, again, it's just kind of a way for you guys to give back without actually having to do a whole ton. So if if you do take the time, we appreciate it. And as always, we'll, we'll give you a shout out on the show. So thank you much. All right. And with that, uh, it's time for my favorite portion of the show. Survey says, all right. Um, okay. So uh, we asked a hundred respondents. Do you know how much the average hipster weighs? And the top choices were, <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you do you know how much the average hipster weighs? Either of you? Uh, way less than us. Um, yeah, about, I don't know. About one Instagram. Oh gosh. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Mike RG. All right. So uh, previously, we asked which hand do you type the six key with, and your choices were the left. Because, duh, it's closer. Or the right. Probably because of my ergo keyboard. Or I also thought about this one, too, after that. And, in fact, I think we had some comments like this, too, like with using the right hand, like because of the numpad. Mm. Should have probably been part of that, but, yeah. So uh, this is this is the, the Math of Chicken's favorite kind of uh, survey right here. And uh, you are up first, sir, as to, uh, you know... Which one do you think it is, left or right, and by percentage? Uh, well, I think um, so. Just based on my own activity, I've been watching this for a while now. So um, uh, I'm going to go with uh, left forty percent and right forty percent. <laughs> the other twenty percent is nose. Uh, nose. Yep. Like you just bang your head down on the keyboard and well, you got your nose. nose. It's just uh. just the nose. <laughs> like like it, it, like Pinocchio would have a really good yeah he'd be really good at hitting the six key is what you're saying yeah that's right okay, okay I'm still so not I'm, sure I understand what your single answer is there though like which I don't one think you it thought matters one? because I think you need to adjust the uh, adjust the question actually uh, so left fifty one percent left fifty one percent okay oh he actually went with a winning percentage I'm so disappointed yeah um, I am kind of surprised with that too. Yep. All right. So I'm I'm going to uh, prices right the Mathema chicken, and I'm going to go left with fifty two percent. Oh, that's dirty. Oh, dirty. That's dirty. Is, because that's the real answer. Okay. Woo, buddy. I don't want to be around you two. There's gonna be a fight. <laughs> um. 
<laughs> All right. Well, uh, the answer is the left because duh, it's closer. Sixty-five percent. Yeah, of almost the vote. keyboards. Sixty-five. I'm surprised it's not like ninety. Hey, you're on the sculpt ergo, right, Joe? Yep. Yours is on the left hand side, right? Yep. Yeah, man. It's only these crazy ergonomic keyboards where they move the six over to the right. It drives me crazy. I still haven't gotten used to it. <laughs> you gotta use your nose. <laughs> <laughs> click, click. Uh, <laughs> Looking like a chicken. <laughs> you know, I'm still. I'm st- like. I he I keep hearing uh you know little like complaints like this from Alan about like the, all these ergonomic keyboards and and you know obviously Alan's still doing this like uh the most inclusive ergonomic keyboard review uh ever done and the most exhaustive you know one ever done too um I don't know that anybody has ever gone to the level of detail that Alan is going to and with as many uh candidate keyboards as Alan is going through but then when you hear him like make little comments like that, you know, and I'm thinking like, oh gosh, he, he, he still has my Moonlander is like, <laughs> is that a jab at my Moonlander? But I don't want to know yet. Cause I want to wait for the review when it f- officially comes out. But I'm like, <gasps> like, am I going to hate this thing when I finally do get it? I, I can't tell you, but, but he's you can not- reprogram the Moonlander so I could like move that six key wherever I wanted. You I can totally make every can. key a six key. You could. I can only type sixes. You totally could. As a matter of fact, depending on what button you hit on that keyboard, that might be all you can do anyway. <laughs> um, but, but in fairness, he is not wrong. I have definitely done a couple of reviews already, and they are greater than 30 minutes long. It's uh, Now, the honest it, re- keyboard review, that hasn't gone out yet, right? No, it, it, okay. I, I've, I've got to go back to it. Actually, nothing's happened. I mean, Joe Zach and I can attest to the fact that I don't think we've had more than one breathing hour a day free for the past two months. So, um, but, yeah, it's soon, soon it, it will, it will land soon. Yeah. Yeah. No worries. It, it's, it's been rough. The moon lander will land soon. Yes. On YouTube. I see what coming. you did there. Uh, yes, it was good, right? Yeah, I didn't realize I did it till I did it. Yeah. All right. You know, I, I uh, a friend of mine. He he just moved, and so you know, you get you get like housewarming gifts and whatnot. And so I, I got him an elephant for his room, and he was like, "Oh, thank you." And I said, "Don't mention it." I'll get it for his room. You'll get it. How do you not get an it? Elf in the room. Oh, geez. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, finally, it took a minute. It was like too early. Like maybe you need more caffeine or something. Like maybe. Yeah, that was from Lars. Thank you, Lars. That's a good one. Hey, and by the way, we apologize for no survey this episode. Uh, lack of sleep, lack of desire to do anything in this world of late has has, has hurt us. So, yeah, we'll, we'll make it All up right. next time. Yeah, well, maybe we'll have two or three. Like, we'll make this survey will be like Alan's tip of the week, where we just have <laughs> like you know, however many deci- surveys we decide to have that episode. How's that? <laughs> Sounds good. I like it. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's get back into how recursive functions work then. Yeah, and so we talked about uh, just a second ago how the call stack works, how every time you call a function, it pops a, I shouldn't say pop, <laughs> it puts a frame uh, on the stack with space allocated for all the input arguments, local variables, and a return address. And sometimes some metadata, depending on your language. Uh, recursive functions are uh, exactly the same. 
the, the stack doesn't care what it returns to. It doesn't care what the name of the function is. It just cares about the, the network. So there's no difference uh, in a recursive function. So generally, if your language supports functions, it supports recursion. And there's nothing fancy about it. There, most languages use this kind of stack mechanism. So there's nothing really magical about recursive functions. Uh, so real quick, I want to talk about that Fibonacci sequence again. So uh, I'm going to fix up my math here on air live because carry the one wrong. divide by pi. And, and remember, <laughs> when he's going to talk about these numbers, it's the it's the raw mathematical formula, which is the Fibonacci of subsequence at position n is the Fibonacci of position n minus one and the Fibonacci of position n minus two, right? So it's two calls. Yep. Uh, and so um, we're roughly going to approximate the Fibonacci, uh, every call to the Fibonacci function as 64 bits. So it's going to be 32 for the argument of your index and 32 for the return address to get you back to where you were to continue uh, processing. So every time Fibonacci is called, it's going to be 64 bits on the stack. In this theoretical function that we're creating. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's okay. theoretical in that we don't have it in front of us right now, but it exists. It can exist. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, I realized there's a bug in the implementation I typed and mentioned earlier. So, uh, brownie points if you figure out what the bug is. Uh, <laughs> Are you so talking anyway. about the B? Because I replaced it in the in the thing. No, another bug. Okay. All right. Good. <laughs> All right. So every Fibonacci call, uh, aside from uh, the uh, crap, sorry, uh, for the one for zero and one, which is returned immediately. Uh, adds two frames to the stack. So if you say, I want to know what the hundredth Fibonacci number is, we're going to do a hundred squared frames on the stack times 64 bits. And so we are looking at, oh crap, got to do the math here. So what's 100 squared? Uh, if I carry the one. 10,000, right? Yep, 10,000. So times 64 for the number of bits. So that's a whole lot of uh, bits right there. I'm going to shrink it down to bytes and I'm going to shrink it down to kilobytes because that's what we're talking about. So this is 0.6 kilobytes. Uh, so I'm adjusting this here because. All right. So for getting the 100th position of a Fibonacci sequence, we're at 0.6 kilobytes or six. Yeah. Yep. And so half a, half a floppy disk. Right in the big eight inch, eight inch things, just full of these big dumb redundant numbers. And remember, we only have one megabyte total. So, I mean, that's a hundred. A hundred is nothing in computing terms. So, you can imagine if you said, "What's the millionth Fibonacci number?" Uh, you're gonna you're gonna blow your stack. You're gonna get a stack overflow trying to get to that number, which is crazy because like a million is not a lot, but a million squared times sixty four, well, that's that's a lot. <laughs> that's exponential. Well, well, I mean, even just doubling the number to 200 is going to grow that number significantly, right? Like this isn't linear. It's not like for every 100, it's going to be 600 bytes. No, when you go to 200, you're talking about 200 squared now, which is a much bigger number than 10,000. Yeah, it's literally literally exponential. 
So it right. gets worse and worse and worse and worse. So yeah, no, I don't care about how good your computer is. Uh, you're going to have some problems getting to the millionth Fibonacci, uh, number with this method. But kind of like we said, like we could do this on paper, right? If, uh, if I were doing this on paper, I wouldn't do it the way we just described it. Uh, what I would do is, uh, I would start, I would write down zero, I would write down one, and then I would do the next number, which is zero plus one, one, then one plus one is two, one plus two is three. And so you're going to do it on paper. Cash on paper, really. Like you're going to, well, you're going to cash building the like, array from the, from instead of like saying like, Hey, I want this number. I want the hundredth number. You're going to go on paper from, okay, let me start calculating it from the beginning. To, uh, until I get to that number. Well, you know what? I don't even need paper, though, because I don't ever have to go back in time. I can just sit here and say, okay, well, 3 plus 5 is 8, and then the only numbers I need to remember are the last two. Mm-hmm. 5 and 8 is 13. Well, that 8 and 13 is 21. Point. Yeah. I don't love that term here okay. because I'm not invalidating. Uh, but, you know, 8, eight and 13, 21. So 13, 21 is... I only ever have to remember two numbers. So I don't need to have... Uh, this gigantic stack. Like I can literally do with this two variables and a, you know maybe a temp or <laughs> maybe a counter to keep track of where I am. So I can have a memory complexity essentially of zero. Uh, so rather than having kilobytes of data to get to the hundredth number, uh, I can have sixty-four bits, and that's it. So uh, Fibonacci is a terrible algorithm to do a recursion on because it's just not necessary. But it is a good example. Uh, and so, um, that, that kind of, um, the technique or the way things that work, uh, work with a recursive function where we basically have to go all the way to the end before we can start adding our numbers back up, um, by, by put, putting on this, uh, frame on the stack, frame on the stack, frame on the stack, frame on the stack. Oh, finally we got to zero. Let's go back and start, um, winding this thing back. That's called backtracking. And it means we're doing, uh, the work for the function to accumulate the results at the end of the data. So we go out or uh, we, we search out of our uh, unbounded d- data structure, our dynamic data structure. And once we got to the end, we wind it back and actually do the work we care about. So that's a bad idea with Fibonacci because I just said, well, if we just build this thing up from the beginning, we don't even need to keep track of that. I don't have to keep anything around other than the last two numbers. And so I can just swap those things around. So we can do that with recursion. If we rewrite our algorithm, and I'm not going to try to to read it because it's not even that hard, but it's just doing code on a podcast is tough, but we've got a link to it. But if we can rewrite this function so that it does its work up front and it passes the current number, the current sum to its next call. So we do the accumulation up front. And so basically the effect is we say, here's the number I just computed and the the number I computed before that, pass that to the next function. We can have that function build up recursively. Now, in a uh, language that doesn't support tail call optimization, there's going to be no difference because we're still going to add a frame to the stack for every execution. So we're passing more arguments now. Remember, we're passing uh, the value that we calculated for n minus 2. And we're, we're passing the value we calculated for n minus 1 uh, onto the next call. It's still going to allocate those three variables in the return space, and so nothing's saved. Now, if your language supports tail call optimization, it can say, 
hey, you know what? I see that there's no more operations that need to be called after this refer this recursive call. It literally just returns its results to the last function on the stack. So why don't I just collapse that and take this item off the stack, add the new one, and just change this return address? So now instead of saying return to address B, just go back to A. And we don't even need to keep this middle frame around anymore. Okay, so I don't think I'd seen this defined that way. So what you're saying is the difference. So to be upfront here, tail call recursion or, or optimization, isn't that what it's called? Tail yep. call optimization has to be built into whatever the programming language is, is that you're using or into the compiler, I'd imagine, right? One of the two. And by doing so, you're basically doing your recursion in a particular way that it knows how to take the results from the previous call, pop it off the stack, and then just add the new one onto the stack is what you're saying. Yep. So I hadn't heard to that referred to that way, which is which is really good because the other alternative is you can just write your method in a way to where you kind of you're doing that yourself, right? So. Yep. If the language doesn't support this tail call optimization, you can still achieve the same effect, but that's, I believe, where you get back into what you said earlier, which is dynamic programming. Oh, well, that or doing the problem iteratively. So like we, right. the approach we talked about with Fibonacci, we were basically having a while loop and say, while right. number is less than 100, add up the last number plus the last last number and uh, carry those forward and just repeat until right. we get to 100. So... It was specifically tail recursion when I'm when I mentioned episodes eighty nine and ninety seven before, like we had specifically discussed tail recursion during those conversations related to like you know big O and why does it matter and um, the uh, uh, the tree conversation related to data structures. Yeah, so it's really interesting. So um, there's a, the, the big catch is that your function call, your recursive function call, has to be the last instruction. Which means I can't even uh, take the result of the function and add one, right? Because that doesn't that doesn't uh, that's not allowed. It literally has to be just alone on its own. So, um, fun, like we talked about memoization, storing a cache over in the reference and just passing a pointer. Great way to do this. So if you can use memoization, uh, either you know stick that in a global or pass that pointer to that object on the uh, on the heap. And then not do anything else with your result after you just kind of pass it back, then that is a prime candidate for tail call optimization if your language supports it. And most languages do. So what you're saying is in the typical, in the typical Fibonacci thing that, that we were talking about, usually your return method is, um, I don't know that, the current value plus Fibonacci of some sequence, right? Yep. And what you're saying is that is not allowed when you're doing tail call recursion. Instead, your return function has, or your return method has to be return Fibonacci of something. That's it. You cannot, you cannot do anything else to it except call that function. Yeah. And I've got a link to that solution and you'll see why I'm uh, hesitant to try and describe that. (laughs) Uh, So let's see here. If you click that link, it's um, it's the one that's uh, geeksforgeeks.org slash tail recursion Fibonacci. These links will be in the show notes too. Yeah, we definitely don't want to try and describe this, but but the gist okay, picture of it a is, triangle. 
Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, you know, it's funny you say that because I've been holding off on saying anything, but in recursion, there is a way to visualize what's happening on the call stack. So just, just for kicks, I want, I want to say this so that if you've never thought about it this way, maybe it'll help. If you call something like factorial, we'll, we'll take factorial because it's easy, right? You've got factorial four is four times three times two times one. If you created a function that was recursive for factorial, what happens is you put in four, it adds each method call to the stack like we talked about before. So if you if you picture like a, a pyramid or a triangle growing, every time it has to go back, so you pass in four, that gets added to the stack doesn't get executed because it says, well, I need the factorial of three first. So it passes another factorial of three to the stack. So you're growing how tall that pyramid is. It doesn't do any of those calculations until it gets to the tip of that pyramid. And then it starts doing, okay, I I got all the way down to factorial one. When it's at the tip of that pyramid, it's going to return the factorial of one pops that off the stack. So now the pyramid starts shrinking right? You, you went up to the top of it. Now it's coming down the other side. Now it's going to have to calculate factorial of two, return that, then three, then four. So it does everything in sort of reverse order. So you grow the stack and then it shrinks as it's returning those values. I mean, I can see it as a line, but like, I, I guess I'm losing the, um, it, it, it could be a line, but basically what width, I'm saying is it goes up to a got wider because you were adding more to it. That's where I like the, I don't know how I was joking when I said the triangle, I don't know that it works for, well, the stack's growing, version. the stack's growing over time. So every time you add a method to it, it goes up to a point, right? So yeah, it but keeps that getting bigger and change in size. So, man, I think, uh, so yeah. it's got, uh, there are examples where it, things can get bigger and smaller and big and can kind of go back in and out. Like, I think it's going to get real messy if we okay, try to we don't stretch do that right. analogy. We, we exit, we exit. All right. Abort, so abort a graph and it points from A to B. <laughs> right. We're going to talk about graphs now, right? So, but the gist is like, uh, just like I kind of mentioned doing this stuff on paper, like back in computer science school and the, the, when, whenever the seventies or whatever I was in there, this wasn't that long ago, <laughs> that. a little bit <laughs> more was closer to the seventies than it was to now. Jeez. And it um, went radio silence. Everybody was like, God, he's been around a while. <laughs> he really knows his stuff. <laughs> I, was, right. I was born old too. Uh, so born old. So anyway, yeah, the, the deal is um, one of the easiest things you can do with this is uh, to have pencil and paper or pen and paper or, uh, you know, like a notepad open. And basically every time you call a new function, write the inputs to that algorithm uh, at that level of indentation. And whenever you go back, you know, carry your result back there and uh, you'll end up drawing almost like a Christmas tree side of your pages. It kind of things that kind of go in and out uh, depending on the algorithm you're working on. And when you get to the very bottom, when you like hit that position zero, you're done. That's, that's, uh, your stack has been, has been, uh, completed. But like Alan said, you're dealing with the stack. It's only one dimension. And so that's where like the line thing comes in. So I, I'm doing the thing I just said, like we shouldn't do. We're <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. So it goes out to a peak and come back in, comes back in. See, ah, oh, geez. <laughs> Told you. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, uh, what's pretty interesting about this is, um, doing Fibonacci in this way, such that the last method, the last thing that happens in our method is the one call to Fibonacci sequence and we pass the values we computed. It doesn't change the big O at all. We're still doing, um, that's not true. Hey, let me say this differently. <laughs> Depending on how you write your function with tail call optimization or not, it doesn't 
affect the big O time. You know, if you change your algorithm like we did, you know, we did change a little bit. Our, we're not doing redundant values anymore. So that's why I goofed there. But uh, the gist is the telecall optimization does not affect the big time, big O of your application, of your program. It affects your call stack and the memory allocation and how many uh, calculations you can do before your program explodes. But strictly speaking, if you kind of had a compiler flag for like tail optimization on or off, doesn't affect the big O runtime. But in practice, very much affects whether or not your program can complete at all and how long it takes to do, which is interesting, I think. Okay, because basically what you're saying is mathematically nothing changed. It's just how you can deal with it is yep. is what will work or not. In this case, because that space is so limited and memory allocation is expensive, it's one of those things where um, the uh, the actual you know real world technical in, uh, implementation details of your algorithm can dramatically affect uh, whether or not your program can complete in an amount of time. We got some good links here too. If I recall too, though, because you said that it was only changing the the return for that last call, right? Yep. So you still had to go through. That's why it's not changing the the big O because you still had to go through. Like, let's say it was a hundred calls. You still had to go through all those hundred. It's just that instead of the hundredth calling back to the 99th and the 99th going back to the 98th and the 98th, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Instead, the hundredth could just skip back to the first. In, uh, yeah. so, in terms of the frames that were on the stack. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. You're not changing the amount of work that needs to be done. Now, I did say that Fibonacci was a bad example there because we did change the algorithm in addition to, you know, what I said about accumulating those values. It actually did change the amount of work that we needed to do. So in this specific example, because I did a poor example, uh, poor job of choosing an example, we did actually change the algorithm in order to make it support that. Um, if you've ever seen a recursive example that has a, like a, a function named Go, where you've got a, almost like a wrapper function and then an internal function called go. That's a really common function name for uh, this technique where you'll see that somebody has kind of rejiggered things such that the recursive call is at the end. And so they'll, they'll kind of do some things to set up that accumulator value or accumulator values in the case of Fibonacci and pass that into this internal function that's actually going to do the recursion. So it's actually not that bad in most cases to convert things to, to be, uh, be able to be tail call optimized but, um, you know, it does kind of make things just a little bit more awkward to read and to see. But the benefit is you don't have to worry about stack overload exceptions, which is the big downside. But, like I said, not all programming languages support tail call recursion. And sometimes they'll have a flag that either turns it on or off or it's something kind of special. So like I guess Fortran. if you have a flag, what's what's the point? A compiler flag. Yeah, um, I you know I don't know if there's a downside to tail call. Um, yeah, so I don't. Know. So I know um, some C compilers, uh, not modern ones, not so much. But uh, back when tail call optimization was still kind of a newer, novel thought, uh, there would be flags we could say like you know turn it on or off. I think I want to say Java had that. But I don't remember. Let me double check on that. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know why you would want to have it off. Maybe the yeah. compiler sometimes makes mistakes because it's reliant on the compiler seeing. Oh, I don't have any more work to do after this. Right. What's so the pattern? Look ahead a bit. Right. But well, I guess, um, there I guess is one the very famous. I guess where it would bite you though is uh, from a debug perspective, though. Right, because you would you yeah. would, it would mess with the the stack in that regard. 
you wouldn't like, have the stack to look at. Yeah. yeah I was, I was, I like Googled, you know, looking for like, Hey, what, what's the disadvantage to it? And, and there was one saying like, you know, it would have no stack. So it'd be, that makes sense. Yeah. Cause if it breaks somewhere in the middle, all you have is that middle frame that it, that it added there. So you have no history of how it got there. Yeah. So I guess, cause so that answers the question about like why you'd want to use the flag, but it also like, I was about to ask like, Oh, should we, you know, look for languages that support tail recursion and, you know, like as a, you know, an industry, should we try to focus on those, you know, and, and instead of, uh, you know, the ones that don't support it, but it sounds like, you know, there's pros and cons to each. So yeah. uh, Um, some security uh, methods that basically look for code injection or like um, security vulnerabilities would count, rely on counting stack frames to see if anything has been inserted maliciously. So if you start deleting these middle frames, it can't do that anymore. And so it's hard to detect when things are bad. And like you mentioned that uh, the compiler uh, or the debugging experience gets weird. So, you know, in uh, like C Sharp, for example, you can have like a, a publish and Node has the same thing. A lot of languages have the same thing where you can, you can run it in debug mode or you can run it in release mode, which gets rid of uh, a bunch of stuff that normally runs and uh, does some optimizations. Like this would be an example of something where you wouldn't necessarily want it to do that collapsing in debug mode. But when you release it, yeah, turn that baby on, right? That makes yeah. sense. So, uh, Python does not support tail call optimization. That's it. It's dead to me. <laughs> Done. Uh, Java 8, all the way up to 8, did not support tail call. You know what? I'm sorry. Java 11 is when it started, is when uh, tail call optimization. Was and that's made. why we only just recently started linking Java, so. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> hey. <laughs> Uh, everything still requires Java eight for some reason. So yeah. <laughs> who cares that it's on version 95? That's <laughs> true. why we can't it. have nice things, Alan. That's true. That's right. Uh, Scala did some stuff. So it would have like kind of compile time. Um, C sharp does not innately support tail call recursion. And that's why that's it's it. dead. It's, to me. it's dead to me also. Yeah. Yep. So actually I think I, I said like pretty much all modern languages, uh, support tail call, uh, tail call, uh, bleh, optimization. Uh, I was just wrong. It just doesn't. Yeah, what you meant is JavaScript supports tail call recursion. <laughs> that's well, let's it. find that's out. That's why I do let's everything see. in JavaScript. Actually, JavaScript does because you sent me that video earlier of the lady singing to the Lion that's King right. theme and something else. That's my tip of the week, man. Oh, dude, I'm sorry. I take it back. <laughs> that's cool. The best talk I've ever seen in my life on YouTube uh, was uh, Tail Call Optimization, the musical, in which uh, Disney show tunes <laughs> where. Uh, all about uh, all about tail call optimization. It's excellent. You know what? I'm going to one up that, and I'm going to go find the video of the the lady that did one of the talks over at NDC London, where she was doing music through code. Ooh. I've never in my entire life, man. Like it, it was amazing. Yeah, so, sounds good. Anyways, go ahead. And I know you like I like you like music. You like code. You've writ, you've actually done some YouTube videos on making music with code. So you you will very much enjoy this one. Yeah, yeah, I'll give that a watch. That sounds good. Um, I am uh, updating the notes here. Yeah. So, um, what have we talked about? What have we not? So yeah, if you can uh, rewrite your program version, and then <laughs> says, yeah. welcome to Coding Blocks, episode one fifty four. Yep. 
So, uh, yeah, I didn't realize that so many languages didn't uh, support it because I ran out of time <laughs> putting the notes together. <laughs> so let's see, does uh, yeah, we said JavaScript does. I don't know. You have any other languages you want to check? Like C plus plus support. Kotlin. That's another one of things. Is like there's different yes. compilers for these. Well, it's Kotlin. Java support. Well, let's see. Well, I guess it's Maybe. its own language, just compiling to Java bytecode. So that's different. Yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, I would assume. Uh, Kotlin compiler converts tail call optimized um, optimized function calls to uh, iterative iterative code. So nice. it's the compiler doing it um, yep. when it's compiled. And uh, you know, if you remember, saying like JIT code or whatever, um, well, this would be a, a part where that's not happening here. What about yeah? But that's fine, right? Like like I said earlier, it doesn't necessarily have to be the language. It just has to get turned into the the bytecode that will do it efficiently for you, right? That's all that matters. What about Rust? Uh, Rust has situations where the tail call recursion is, uh, guaranteed to be optimized. Uh, looks like there's a couple, um, oh, sorry, it's never guaranteed, but, uh, the optimizer may end up doing it, um, depending on, uh, some documented, very finicky definitions of <laughs> when it can be detected. Uh, but it basically, uh, you know, Rust has a big, uh, fo- emphasis on, uh, memory, on memory safety. And so it needs to be very careful that, uh, the, basically, the variables are destroyed appropriately or whatever. But uh, this is over my head. What about I have one more request, only only to see if it can redeem itself and maybe win us a listener to PHP. All right, let's see. <laughs> PHP Alan, support. Why would you set up PHP <laughs> like that? That was wrong of you, man. Dear listeners that are PHP programmers, I apologize for Alan's insensitivity. Yes. We already lost somebody whose first episode was that, but that's fine. I, I you know, I do. While while Joe's looking that up, though, uh, you know, for those on the on the Slack, and if you've listened to this episode for any length of time, you've heard references to Joe Recursion Joe, uh, and and you can meet him on the Slack community if you haven't already. Uh, I don't know if he like knew that we were happened to be doing this or maybe if it was because of the Python conversations we've recently had, but he sent me his favorite Python script that is recursive. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he's like, he passes in like, he, you know, he'll call like, Hey, who's awesome. And he'll call this function called get name and he'll pass in Joe and it'll be like, Hey, if the argument is Joe, then it's Joe. Otherwise, pass you know, uh, return recursion, and it'll just keep like calling get name with one of those two values. So it's always Joe recursion, Joe recursion, Joe recursion, Joe recursion, Joe recursion, Joe. <laughs> That's awesome. It, it, he's a really sharp dude over there too. Highly recommend going and and interacting with him on on Slack or even in the comments on the episodes. Like he's he's definitely given some good stuff up on there. Yeah. When, when he does hit like a recursion, uh, uh, limit, you know, because when he gets to that, that exception, then it's like, you got this. <laughs> <laughs> I'll share the script to, uh, that he, that he gave. Cause it is funny. All right. So, Joe, uh, what'd you find? Uh, found a list on Wikipedia. So Haskell. Yes. Erlang. Yes. Uh, Lisp sometimes. Uh, JavaScript sometimes, um, depends on, you know, different engines and stuff. Right. Um, Alua, yes. OCaml, yes. Python, no. Uh, Rust, kinda, sometimes, most of the time. <laughs> Is it really written like that in the Wikipedia page? I want to see this Wikipedia page. <laughs> <laughs> it may be done in limited circumstances, but it's not guaranteed. Just trust them. Trust so them. So it's kind of literally it, it maybe is the answer. <laughs> it may be done in limited circumstances, but maybe not. 
Where's where's PHP? Sounds like then? if it says limited yeah. circumstances, yeah. then I would interpret that as most of the time it's not. Not yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, Kotlin, yes. Um, Perl, if you explicitly set a flag or uh, with a very explicit variant of go to that takes the function name. Uh, Scala, yes. So basically, the functional language is uh, F sharp, closure, um, well, closure, and uh, if you use a special function. So, yeah. Uh, so, whatever language you're working in, probably not, actually. <laughs> probably not. So I'm glad we discussed this today. Some yeah. useless information for you. But hey, JavaScript is on that leading edge. Uh, Kotlin, right. you know, hey, so right. is, uh, I know and love. We should just title this episode. Episode 154, useless information. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> almost useful information. <laughs> oh, almost useful. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I think it's neat. It's, uh, and you can imagine um, it doesn't have to just be uh, – recursion that this tail call optimization works for anytime it sees a function where all it needs to do is just return and it can say hey you know snip that out oh it's still doing work though so i would argue that the kind of the the while loop is still better because um you can't just reuse a frame on the stack you always have to take the last one off put a new one on so you're doing those allocations still so you're and taking that's a tiny hit but like you said they're super fast right like yeah. those those call stacks are hyper fast because it's it's allocated ram for for that and, uh, yeah, so that's tail call recursion. And, uh, I wanted to talk about tail call recursion, uh, just because it's one of those things that's like you see come up in interviews or something, or someone will talk about Fibonacci. And pretty much anytime you talk about recursion, uh, they're going to show you Fibonacci and they're going to talk about why Fibonacci is bad. And they're going to say, but, but now you know if you're working in like F sharp, then <laughs> you can, uh, do this technique and make things better. So this is like one of those fizz buzz things. It's, it's just, sort of necessary for for doing inter interview type things yeah and we got a list of uh companies you want to interview at so uh i have a nice um a nice uh article here for tips on how to write recursive functions i initially thought i'd be able to find like a bulleted list it's like hey here's five tips here's uh here's where we go because i kind of have my own little list when i'm working with uh you know leak code type problems so I, I figured i'd share my list for how i think about recursive algorithms and this is nothing official. This is just like how I think about it. This is Joe's official list. Yep. <laughs> nothing <For a> recursion, official. <laughs> uh, list for yeah. <laughs> the official unofficial list. And I think it's awesome that he really is so tired that he's not catching any of this stuff. No, I mean I hear it, but just like the humor part of my brain has been bypassed. You know, it's like an emergency mode. You know, you <laughs> so I recognize that it's funny. Bike, I just can't laugh. Joe, that's what you need to do. Go ride your oh, get, like. Get out of the house and just go for a bike ride. Like I, at least you can go ride yours. I've been working on mine, so like mine's in a thousand what? parts right now. But what? You know, yeah, I'm replacing the drive, the whole drivetrain on it and everything. But really? I'm like waiting on parts to come in and. Wow. So your road bike? Uh, no, the mountain bike. Yeah, the okay, mountain. Well, get on the road bike, man. Well, yeah. I mean, technically, I guess I could do that, but uh, huffy side note: shop. Outlaw is possibly the fastest bike rider. I went riding with this dude and I like, I thought, you know, I go riding pretty often, whatever, 20 miles, no big deal. You know, like this is the kind of stuff I enjoy doing on the weekend. Outlaws like, yeah, I used to do some riding. Uh, I went ahead and got a new bike. Let's go. Let's go riding at the Silver Comet Trail. Elena. Outlaw gets on this bicycle and disappears into the sunset immediately. And me and our buddy John is on episode 100. We're like, 
what the heck, man? <laughs> and I don't think we had Robax at the time, um, but still, I mean, it was just like Outlaw just took off and he looked so casual. He's he like talking to us and we like can't even hear him anymore because he's so far ahead of us. It's ridiculous. I do remember that particular day because I thought we were all going. And I looked back and I'm like, wait, where'd those guys go? Yeah. Like, what the heck, man? They have a flat already? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just crazy. I literally Outlaw. couldn't see you. I had to turn around and go back. Yeah, incredibly talented bicyclist. That's uh Did you know though that, that I mean here's the downside. Uh did you know that bicycles and motorcycles they can't hold themselves up? Um I mean kinda. I mean, no, they can't. They honestly can't. They're like you, they're too tired. Oh jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Another one from Mike RG, thank you. Yeah. Uh, yep. I'm like well, you can get a kickstand. Well, well, it's all about the setup, Alan. Hold on now. It fit right in. The joke, telling a good joke, the art of telling a good joke, it's all about the setup. My whole conversation about getting him to go on a, ride his bike was the setup for that joke. It, it was well done, sir. <laughs> I saw what was happening at the end, and I saw Joe like, no, I totally can't. I was like, oh, he, he did. He's got to lean on something. <laughs> he, he bit. Yep. Why don't fancy bikes have kickstands? Fancy anyway. bikes. Fancy bikes. If, it, if I'm paying a thousand bucks for a bike, it better have a kickstand, you know? What? It should. Yeah, it anyway. totally should. I, I, I agree. But. I, I do not. <laughs> I, I do not agree with this assessment. <laughs> Gotta save them a hundred grams. All right. So, so Joe's tips <laughs> on how to do recursion. Where, where are we going? <laughs> Start yep, with a tips. bike ride. Start with a bike ride. Uh, no. So, uh, start with the, start with the end, uh, start with the stop condition. So, uh, didn't really get into kind of the, the overall structure of uh, a recursive function, but the deal is generally the same, uh, for all recursive functions. You're going to have some sort of condition at the beginning that says, if something, then we return. Otherwise, we're going to do some work that ends up calling that function again. So like in the case of Fibonacci, we said, if it's zero or if it's one return, uh, otherwise, you know, do these recursive calls. And so I like to always think about my stop condition first because that just makes sense to me. And that's something I saw on a couple different lists. Now, number two, this is the most important one. And I'm going to rephrase it here. Uh, whoa, if I can, oh my gosh. That stop condition though is hard to write first. If you're thinking of optimizing for a tail recursion, uh, yeah. you know, compiler. Yeah, that's tricky. So I definitely, uh, when, like, when I've kind of dabbled with messing around with tail call recursion, I definitely did it the, kind of the wrong way or the, the easiest way for me to understand and make sure it works and then try to do tail call. And then to make sure that it's actually doing tail call is basically print out the stack or see if it uh, finishes. <laughs> and you know, that's, uh, something's better. Now, the number, so number two tip, most important, do it by hand before you start coding. If, if you're, if you cannot manually do a simple example of the problem you're trying to do recursively, like in notepad or with a piece of paper for the, like a simple input, it ain't going to work when you code it. <laughs> right. So a lot of times I think, uh, and I still fall on the trap, even though I know this is, uh, like I'll have an idea for an algorithm and I think I know it. Okay. I'm going to loop through the tree here, get to the bottom, do the thing, divide by two, and then we'll go left or right. And then I'll start coding it. And as I start testing, I realize I missed some big piece. And so it's really important that you understand very deeply exactly what you want to do. And for the most part, if you're doing like these kind of like uh, leak Cody type things, your program is going to be like 10 lines of code or, uh, you know, it's not going to be that complicated. Um, 
because the algorithms can be uh, very tricky, but also very small. So definitely highly recommend making sure you really get the right answers and you understand exactly what needs to happen in those instructions. And then when you say, okay, sorry to interrupt. No, no. I'm curious here just to show of hands. So, you know, kind of think because this is somewhat related, but kind of not, but kind of it is. And it totally is. And that's the recursion part. So, um, <laughs> you say do it by hand though. So do you often keep like a, a piece of paper and a pencil beside you and you're like, okay, let me write this out. And like, this is how oh, I do that. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. So like you, when you say, write it, do it by hand, like you're literally on pen and paper or pencil and yep. paper. Cause you know, I mean, you're not a monster. Yeah, actually. So if you're doing like serious interview prep, one of the best things you can do is uh, take your hands off the keyboard. Well, you know, this is like whiteboard. So this is maybe old device, you know, pre COVID device, take your hands off the keyboard, go get a notebook and a pen and <laughs> do that problem, pen and paper. And you don't necessarily have to, you know, pseudocode, but make sure you can work through that problem by hand without the compiler, without the functions, just make sure that the pseudocode algorithm works before you start typing. Because man, when you start typing, that's when things, that's when you end up down the rabbit hole. And in whiteboard interview, you're generally just doing that, uh, that whiteboarding and writing the algorithm and stuff. So if you, if your solution for prepping for an interview is to actually solve problems on leak code, you're going to spend probably three fourths of your time debugging and off by one errors and, you know, why is the comma, oh, the function didn't do what I expected. And that none of that stuff is applicable for the interview. So you're wasting three-fourths of your time for a whiteboard interview by practicing on something like leak code. So it's really important to think that like that pen and paper, the stuff you do there to make sure that your algorithm is good before you go and type it is so much more important than the actual typing and getting the right answer and passing all the test cases. I mean, but that's in the case of like interviews and whatnot. I'm talking about like if, yeah. even if it was just for work though. You know, well, I, it, the same applies though. I mean, in all honesty, what he said is make sure you've locked down your algorithm, then implement it. Right. So if you fully understand exactly what you've got to do, I think the same applies because he was saying you waste three quarters of your time on leak code, debugging your off by one errors and all that kind of stuff to whereas if you go in, not having to try and solve the algorithm while you're also trying to write the code for it, then you're focusing on just writing the proper code and not trying to implement the algorithm at the same time in, in you know, mentally. Okay. Well, let's go back to my question then, Alan, do you pen and paper try to solve a problem that you're working on, on pen and paper, like physical pen and paper? Um, no, not pen and paper, but I will draw out something. I guess the answer for me is better stated in, I, I will actually go outside of coding to try and write out the steps or draw out the steps in another application. So maybe not even pseudocode, maybe drawing boxes and saying, Hey, I want this thing to happen here and this to happen here. Right. So, so not necessarily pen and paper, but, but not writing code. So I guess, I guess I'm the, the weirdo because, uh, and, and this is probably like, I guess bad habit on my part. Cause I don't like, I, I would rarely go to pen and paper, I, I typically would like write out in comments, like I'm, I'm still within my IDE or whatever. And I write it out in comments, like, okay, I think I wanted to do this. Then I want to do that. And I want to do that. And then I want to do this. And this is what I want to return. And then I start trying to fill in the blanks in between. Like I'll have like different comment lines, you know, for, for what I think the different steps are. And then in between those comments, I will start to like write in, okay, I think this is what I'm trying to do. 
but yeah, I don't, I, you know, Oh no. I, so I don't do pen and paper for like line of business type stuff. Like, Oh, get the record from the database, uh, times by two and put it back. No, no way. I'm, I'm specifically talking for like leak code, those kind of mathy challenges where like, I need to see yeah. the numbers changing from harder which problems never happens at work. Right? Yeah, well, never. I'm talking never. about the same kind of thing too. I would like just write it out in comments as comments. Yeah, and I, to me, that's the same thing as pen and paper, right? Like you're writing no, out no, the algorithm. No, I was specifically trying to like call out the difference of like there. I, I disagree with you, Alan. There is totally a difference between the, the 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 mindset and the thought process that you might use if you're writing it by hand on paper versus what you're doing on the computer. Because because like your example for a moment, like of like drawing squares and everything. Like you give me pen and paper, it's super easy to like draw arrows, draw lines or whatever, you know, I can be way more freeformed. Whereas if I'm in an IDE and I'm just like writing comments, then I'm limited to characters, printable characters, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like I would probably open up something like a PowerPoint if I, if I were going to do it on the computer. Right. So yeah, it's definitely, I will step outside of code for a complicated problem to try and hammer out the algorithm before I try and implement it for sure. I was say, if you're doing like a red black tree or you say just some arbitrary uh, algorithm, like, uh, hey, what we want to do here is um, add up all the right hand values from a tree. So if it's ever a right hand child, then add it up and return that value. Then that's somewhere where absolutely the pen and paper comes out. And so I start kind of like verifying the numbers, like then my instructions are, you know, kind of correct. Or like, and that's because I'm, I'm doing the pen and paper, not to pseudocode, but to check my, that my pseudocode is correct. So before I want to get into writing the loops, and I'll do that all the time on LeetCode. Well, I'll do it on, um, and you know, like basically in the editor or whatever, where I'll say like, okay, if I pass in a 10, it's going to, because the number's even, I'm going to reduce it by two and if the, you know, whatever. So I'll kind of like make sure that my plan, the pseudocode, so I write those comments just like you said, outlaw, but when I'm doing like a lead code or something, before I try to start typing that, uh, converting that to code, I'll verify my solution because a lot of times I'll get kind of far into something and realize, oh crap, I didn't handle this case. That's really important. It's so easy to misunderstand the problem. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's where I'm like, <clears throat> you know, you know, try, I guess like learning from my own, my own, uh, you know, for my, for my own selfish reasons to, you know, learn, learn the process. Right. Because, cause like when in the past where I have like broken down a pen and paper, it's because I was debugging a problem, not because I had started with pen and paper to like, Oh, Hey, how could I solve this leak code problem? It was like, why isn't this working? And then like, okay, fine. Let me, let me draw Like, let me write it down and see like what, if I would think what I'm doing would work you know, the way I'm doing it, but yeah. And imagine if you're doing like a sorting or something where, um, you know, like you're trying to do merge short or something. I can imagine trying to do merge short without putting a couple of values up there and saying like, okay, so now if I do this, this happens and kind of drawing out a little tree or whatever. Right. Finding what your outputs are at each step so that you know how to validate them once you implement. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's kind of where I'm going to. So, so I think where we're, where we're at then is that as part of like Joe's official unofficial instructions for this, like he's, he's definitely more like, uh, you know, managerial and plan ahead. And I'm more like Leroy Jenkins and get into the editor. <laughs> so I would say if you did more, like you're not like, you're not really into the leak code thing, right? If you start doing more leak codes, you're going to end up doing this because, there's nothing worse than spending an hour fixing your commas and getting converting all the greater thans to greater than equal tos and finding all those stupid off by one errors only realize you solved the wrong problem. 
or that you didn't, uh, you know, you missed part of the instructions or something like that. There's, I mean, it's so easy to spend your entire time solving the wrong problem. And that happens in interviews too. So I highly recommend if you're in an interview situation, like kind of walking through an example, say like, okay, we're sorting these numbers. So I'm going to draw these numbers. Here's the algorithm that I'm planning on. Is this the result that you expected? And if they don't say yes, then thank goodness you didn't start typing. I like Joe's subtle jab, like, you know, if you're not writing it out on pen and paper, you must not be doing leak codes then. No, no, that's not a jab <laughs> at all. Not a jab at all. I like seriously. Totally a I jab mean, and I'm out of here. Forget it. We're done. Uh, we lasted 154 episodes and no, uh, this there, is as I far mean, as we got. Yeah. So leak uh-huh. code problems are a whole nother kind of programming. It's, it's not even like it's uh, bears very little. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm sure there are exceptions, but I would argue like. Finding the longest uh, palindromic substring is not something that you typically do. Um, what about the longest, uh, or sorry, trapping rainwater problem? I'm just looking at problems here on leak code for dynamic programming. Finding the maximal rectangle. That's not stuff that's anything like <laughs> what My I do. My job, man. That's just a Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. What's wrong, chief? <laughs> finding the best time to buy and sell stock. So maybe sometimes, you know, how... Uh, well, I guess yeah. all of this late... You know, is is a great uh, segue into your third tip here in Joe's official unofficial list of uh, recursion tips that are unofficially official. Yeah, if if you want to get good <laughs> recursion, then you're going to need to do a lot of problems, and that's good because there's a lot of ways to find problems. Like I just went and looked, and uh, LeetCode has 1,700 uh, dynamic programming problems. So if you want to learn about dynamic programming. Um, then here you go. And there's even a couple that are marked easy, which I doubt because leak code leak codes. Easy are like my mediums. <laughs> I think leak codes hard, but yeah. And that's seriously no dig at all. I think that you can live your entire life without doing a single problem like this and be an amazing coder and solve amazing and hard problems. Just totally different kind of thing. I was only teasing you. Uh, I'll tell you about that part of my brain is dead. Died. You might need to go see a doctor, man. I mean, I'd love to. <laughs> uh, although, like right now, like you know, this, I, I personally wouldn't want to go see a doctor if I, unless I really had to, just because, like you know, with the pandemic and everything, like that's the last place I want to be unless I absolutely have to be there. You know. Yeah. Although I did go, I did go to the doctor recently because I, I thought like I was having some hearing problems, and and he said I was going deaf, and I gotta tell you that news is hard to hear. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Another one from Mike RG. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I need a refill. So let's wrap this thing up. <laughs> <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> so, just to kind of top things off so, recursion is a powerful tool in programming, and it roughly boils down to a function that calls itself. Uh, it's really great for dynamic and unbounded data structures, uh, things like graphs, trees linked list those data structures are very tightly uh, associated with uh, dynamic solutions be- or sorry with uh, recursive solutions the downside is re- recursive solutions can be memory intensive specifically with the call stack which is very limited and so it's easy to overflow uh, if you are doing things inefficiently or have a, a large data size uh, tail call optimization is a technique that the compiler can use assuming that the compiler uh, supports it and uh, can help mitigate that somewhat. And if you're doing uh, like a Fang interview or uh, one of these companies that think that they're Fang, even though they're not, um, 
then you're very likely to hit a recursive problem. So it's worth kind of practicing those if that's what you're going for. That's one of your goals. And um, knowing that tail call optimization exists and the downside of recursion is really important because they're probably going to hit on that in the interview. And uh, we're going to have links here to uh, all the example code that we talked about and also uh, thousands of problems that you can go solve in your browser right now. No IDE required. All right. So, uh, yeah, we'll have a lot of links uh, in the resources we like section related to this episode. And with that, we head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. It was my favorite portion of the show until today when you were like, hey, we need a tip. And I was like, oh, oh, (laughs) I I, I don't have it. I don't have 13 tips. Right. Yeah. I only only have like eight. Oh, gosh. What do I do? Yeah. Rough day. (laughs) <laughs> All right. Well, it looks like I'm first. So, um, my, my tip, uh, is to take care of your feet. Whoa. Uh, if you don't take care of feet, if you don't put your feet first, then, uh, you're doing yourself a disservice here. So I found a great article here with very excellent, uh, tips for keeping great feet hygiene. Cause nobody wants to smell your stinky peats. You know, maybe it's cute when you're a kid. It's not so cute when, uh, you're old. So, you know, don't wear high heels every day. Um, you know, Use the soap in between the toes, um, pumice stones, you know, just take care of stuff. Um, we've got a list of common problems here. So there's a great article here on how to take care of your feet because your feet take care of you. <laughs> I thought it was going to be the musical thing, but okay. Uh, well, this got yeah, weird. <clears throat> <laughs> um, yeah. So take care of your, your feet. Was that it? Was that literally that was the that was the Joe tip of the week? Yeah, yeah, I got this great moisturizer. I'll put a link. I think that I, I tried to do. <laughs> I just put that you, sl- you slap that baby on a couple times a day, and I mean your feet—it's just like baby feet, just squishy. The, you know, like the humor part of his baby feet. The humor part of his brain is kicking in now. I believe. I, I think so. Curious. I think so. I think I think we had enough uh, jokes from Lars and Mike RG that it's finally triggered. The Jay Z that we all know and love that he can feet health is important, y'all. It is, it is. <laughs> so is lunchtime, which is coming up on you know mm. lunch. Yeah, so we'll have to eat pretty soon, you know. But yeah, you know, maybe it's not lunchtime in your time when you're listening to this. But have you ever like oh, <laughs> side topic? You ever like when you eat something hot? Have you ever like accidentally like uh you know you like you'll rub your eye or something you're like oh god hot sauce awesome, uh-huh. Oh yeah. That happened. Oh yeah. It's like the worst, right? Yeah. But (laughs) so the other day I was eating a sandwich and I got ketchup in my eyes (laughs) instead. (laughs) And now I have hindsight. (laughs) Oh gosh. Oh my gosh. Okay. Thank you, Mike RG. (laughs) I love that. I got the giggle out of Alan. Uh, All right. That's really good. Um, so okay, so so I got two two tips for you this this episode. Um, the first one is just if you aren't already using labels in your uh, Kubernetes, um, you know, objects, you know, be it pods or or cron jobs or whatever, right? Um, then you should because what it allows you to do is that you can then use those labels as part of your selectors, which is. Um, you know, really helpful because then like, let's say for example, you're in a situation where uh, maybe you have like a bunch of uh, say all your Nginx uh, front ends, right. And you might have a label like app equal website 
or web server, for example, right? If you have that, if you have that label there, then you could do a command like a, a kube cuddle delete minus L, uh, you know, app equal web server so that you could let Kubernetes delete all of those instances of whatever that selector is, for example, which, you know, sounds like really bad. And, but, but the way Kubernetes would work is that that delete would cause it to respawn whatever those things are, which is really cool because then if like, let's say you have the scale of your uh, web servers set to like, you know, you want a hundred of those, those things, you don't have to know how many there are. You're just saying like delete the whole thing and it's going to, based on whatever your pod disruption budget is, bring down some certain number of them at a time and then respawn them. Cause that's what the delete is doing rather than doing the opposite where you might say like, Hey, let me manually scale that rep, that deployment set or that replica set down to zero so that all of them die. Uh, and then I'll scale it back up to a hundred, which you would then have a period of, of outage time. But by, uh, I'm getting lost on the delete command. But the point is, is the fact that you were able to use the selector command you did or not the command, but the parameter you didn't have to care, uh, you know, about anything, you know, what the, what the number was or whatever. You're just saying like, apply this to all of these things, which is helpful even for like, you know, if you're just wanting to get the pods, for example, to just look at them. So right. otherwise you have to know the names of the pods. So this label allows you to get lots of things all grouped together by whatever you choose to make it. And, th- right. and that's actually a great call out to that because uh, when you do create those pods, like, Kubernetes will add on like a random, uh, you know, string identifier to, to, to make that pod name unique. So like if you had web server, <clears throat> then it might be like web server dash some random string for the first one web dash web server dash blah, blah, blah for the up to the hundredth one so that they would all be unique. But you could like, when you got the list of pods, you'd be able to get an idea as to like what they, um, uh, what they are based on the pod name. But um, so that was the first one. And then there were the second tip that I had for you. Oh, I have an error in my show notes here, but <clears throat> is, uh, I have mentioned my, my, uh, um, what would you call it? Like, um, what, like a man crush on, on security now. Uh, was that right? No. What's the term for it? I think that's right. Whatever. Uh, but Hot yeah. Crush. Uh, yeah, pod crush. I mean, we, we've, re- we've referenced the security now podcast in the past. Like, you know, I, I've, I've been a long time listener of it since, uh, its inception <clears throat> and, you know, I mean, it's an acquired taste, like any podcast, like, you know, listening to this voice that you're hearing right now, uh, blasting through your, your drums, but, uh, the latest episode, uh, well, actually technically it's not the latest episode, but, uh, the, the most, pre- one of the previous episodes, 808, uh, called C name collusion. If you haven't listened to it, then uh, I would suggest listening to it, especially when you get to the the main meat of the episode where they talk about the C name collusion hack that's going on. Like it is, it is, it will make you mad. Uh, is basically like you know, like oh, that was clever, and yes, the system allows for it, but I'm mad that you did it and you exploited it for something that we didn't intend for it to do. So. Um, did you listen to that episode? Either of you? I did. I did. Um, and that, that leads, well, are you done with this one? Well, I was curious. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't sure like how much detail I should go into with that episode, but yeah, otherwise I can be done. Um, 
So, yes, I listened to the episode, which is also where my tip of the week comes in. If, if okay, it's so weird, I'll, you you need to give a little bit more detail. Okay. So, so basically the, 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 in a nutshell, what that episode was talking about <clears throat> was, uh, we, the three of us, we have all worked with, uh, creating like, you know, big e-commerce websites. And one of the things that they do is this thing called retargeting. Uh, and if you've ever, if you don't know what retargeting is, I, I guarantee you that you have been a, um, not a victim of it, but, uh, recipient. You, yeah. Recipient of it is a much better word. So basically what retargeting is, is let's say you go to some random website and you Google and you're like, Oh, Hey, uh, I'm looking for a, a new seat for my, a new saddle for my bike. A kickstand for your bike. Kickstand. Uh, that's what you're looking yeah, for. Yeah, no. You're looking for a <laughs> kickstand. We need to have some words. Uh, so, you, so you're like, hey, here's a new saddle. And uh, you, you're you like, look at a particular one. You're like, that's the one. I, I really like it. But, you know, maybe you buy it. Maybe you don't. But then every Google search from then on and every uh, Facebook post you look at from then on or like any other random site that you go on that has advertising on the page, you'll see like, you know, 18 other, you know, advertisements for that exact seat that you were looking at, right? <clears throat> that is, that is what retargeting is. And there are, you know, a couple dozen companies out there that, that have, um, different, uh, you know, offerings for this. And in the three of us, we specifically, uh, worked with Critio was one of them. And they were the ones specifically called out because, uh, they, specifically sent to their customers an email saying like, Hey, um, we need you to implement this thing. And, and basically what they wanted done was that all, you know, the world in the, in, in the days of the post Snowden era, right. We, as a, as an industry have gotten much better and much more diligent about, um, security and things like, you know, HTTPS over HTTP, for example, and um and getting much better about like you know recognizing where uh what what data can be used to track you and we're getting better about like privacy and everything and you know some companies like apple take apple for example they like you know really try to market on that like hey we're we're privacy focused first blah 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 but basically like you know even in your browsers like everything has gone into this like whole you know uh posture of uh, privacy and and protecting your privacy and things like that, right? And so, what Critio and others did was they discovered that they could kind of abuse the DNS system in such a way that they could get around whatever privacy guards and tracking guards that you have in place. And so, the way it works is, um, they're using a CNAME record for that, and and. Again, Critio specifically called out because they sent the email out to, to um, you know, informing their companies, you know, co- other companies that they needed to do this. <clears throat> but basically, the way it works is you, let's say that you're Facebook and you get this email from Critio. And what Critio says is like, hey, create a CNAME record so that, let's say, ads.facebook.com will resolve to... Um, our, our, one of our websites, right? But then all of your calls, when you want to call our library, you're going to go to ads.facebook.com, right? 
And that way, from the user's perspective, they're go- they're only visiting Facebook.com. They don't even realize that they're going to some other random, like a Critio website, for example. Um, and and all of their tracking d- ignores that too. But the downside and where the security implications come into play and the, where your concern should be from a security perspective is that it means that now um, the way first party versus third party cookies work is that ads.facebook.com is a first party cookie or a first party you know domain. So all of your Facebook cookies are going to go to ads.facebook.com, which is really in that example being translated back to Critio which means that would include authentication cookies, right? So I'm so, calling out facebook.com, but really like you would like specifically facebook.com, you would hope like, Oh God, hopefully they would never do something like that. Right. I, I don't know specifically what, which ones were, but I was just using them as an example. So don't get caught up on that. But at any rate, the point is like episode 808, he goes into more detail and explains it way better than I did. Um, Cause I, there might even be some details that I, I messed up in that explanation, but, but that's the main the main, you know, big picture gist of it, you know, 50,000 view of, of that episode. Yeah. So <clears throat> just to kind of tie a bow on what he said there is the key is the cookies because cookies on the top level domain are trusted. Any, any subdomain like ads dot something.com. So like, let's say coding blocks, right? Like if we were to go do this and implement this in our DNS records and we set up an ads.codingblocks.com or .net is what we are, then if it was Critio that wanted that done, any cookies from our site across any other domains as well could get sent over to the ads company. And what Outlaw was saying is bad about that is The reason why you can log into a website in the first place and stay logged in, like if you're on Amazon or if you're anywhere, is because there's a cookie behind the scenes that typically stores an authorization token that says, hey, yeah, you're logged in. So every time you go to a page on that site, it's going to get that cookie, it's going to find that token, and then it's going to try and match it to the web server's token and say, okay, here's the variables for this user. Well, they actually tested, and sure enough, They were able to go get cookies, get those tokens out of those cookies, put it on their own computer and impersonate somebody else's login, right? So basically what this means is not only your login tokens for going to a site, but also people have a tendency or or developers or companies have a tendency to just cram whatever they can in those cookies as a convenience. So you've also got personal information in there, right? First name, last name. Maybe address, maybe email address, maybe phone number, whatever, right? Like there's typically a lot of garbage just crammed into a cookie. So at any rate, it leaks that information. Now, so that leads into my tip of the week. So this is sort of, uh, this is tied to the NAS that I built. And I mean, I've just grown to love this thing, but I was looking for a way to basically see what was going on on the network, right? And you guys have heard of Pi Hole. A lot of people love pie holes because you go buy a Raspberry Pi for 35, 40 bucks, put pie hole on there. You turn it into your um, either DHCP or your your uh, um, no, your DNS server in your house. And then that way 
every bit of traffic that comes through goes through that thing and it will try and block bad domains, right? Like they've sort of got a whitelist and a blacklist of things that they track and they will block it. So we've talked about uBlock Origin on, on the show before and other ad blocking software that you can get on your computer. The thing that stinks about that is it's for your computer, right? If you're on your phone in your house, if you're on another computer or another device, right? Like some other device in the house can be going and making requests and they're just open, right? So you've only protected the one device. There is some software called AdGuard and it's actually AdGuard Home is the one specifically that I'm looking at and I've actually installed and it's really good. So it's similar to Pi-hole. and what's really cool about it is this can be your DNS resolution for your entire network. So essentially if you were to go into your router and you said, Hey, my DNS server is no longer 1.1.1.1, who is Google, or in the case of mine, mine was automatically picked up by my ISP, which is Comcast. Theirs was 75, 75, 75, 75. Instead of those, you point it at your AdGuard um, install. So mine's on my NAS, right? So I have the IP and then the port for that thing. And then that way, every single request coming out of your network to go across the internet gets picked up by AdGuard and it will block stuff for you. So before it even gets to your computers, right? Your computer requested MBA.com, which goes out and calls all kinds of garbage. That thing will actually block malicious things on there. Some retargeting and all that. Well, I specifically went and looked to see if it did the C name thing and it actually does mitigate it. So I'll have a link to both AdGuard Home and this other thing that Outlaw was talking about in episode 808 of Security Now. And it does the full CNAME resolution. So what this means is if, like, say, Critio.com was the one that you wanted to block because you know that they're doing dirty things with these, it will fully resolve the CNAME from the top level domain. So if I have ads.codingblocks.net, it's going to look in AdGuard to fully resolve what the real domain is that that thing goes to. And if it's on the block list, it'll block it. So that's actually even better than what Steve Gibson was talking about in security now in that version of in, in episode 808. Cause he said that the, the U block origins thing for Firefox works because it has an API call out to be able to call and resolve the DNS and it'll block it. But that's in Firefox. Chrome doesn't have that feature. So if you were to go to a website in Chrome, even with uBlock origin, it won't block it. It's more complicated than that. Actually in the, in the episode, he actually had like <clears throat> uh, in the show notes for the episode, he has a table of, <clears throat> and this was from the research that the researchers that are, that, did all this work that discovered this and they they, this paper got released early cause they planned to, to dis- publicly discuss this paper in July. Right. But, um, they provided a table of like, here's all the different companies that do this tracking, this retargeting type of thing. And then here's the mitigations and they included Firefox, um, uBlock origin on Firefox, uBlock origin on Chrome, and then they also talked about using a DNS service like a next DNS. Right. Right. And and like how they, they basically in the table show that like depending on which one of the tracking companies, like some of them were blocked by 
uh, uBlock or NextDNS, but none of them, there was no single solution that blocked all of the all tracking of companies. Yeah. And, and that's where it's interesting, right? So you could, and, and the reason why this is my tip of the week is I like having more control over what, what I can and can't see. So if you were to use a DNS service like next DNS, they're going to block stuff and, and you're just not going to get it and you're not going to have any control over it, right? Like if you go to a website and the website crashes because you block some things on it, you have no recourse. You can't do anything. But if you have the service on your network, like this AdGuard Home, then you can say, okay, you know, I want to go to NBA.com. I'm willing to let this thing through, right, to make the page function. So um, it's up to you, but they do actually have protections in here to where it'll fully resolve down to the actual end end location of where that C name's going. So if you want to block it, you can. So um super, super happy with it. And, uh, and you can run it in a Docker image, which is awesome. So, I mean, the real thing about like I- any approach to security is it's kind of like getting dressed for winter, right? Like you just wear layers and, and security is about that too. And so like, even uh, as this table that was in the show notes, uh, Steve Gibson's show notes, like it was about, you know, layers of defense. So like you block origin on a particular browser might be a part of that. Uh, some a service like a next DNS or the ad guard might be another part of that defense. And like any one of those by itself might not be able to solve the problem, but then combined, you know, you, you can stay warm. And you want to know what's really cool about that by the, by the way, because that's a really good analogy to it is that's one thing that I really liked about ad guard is you point your router to the DNS, right? To, to your ad guard thing. You then tell AdGuard which DNS servers you want it to use behind the scenes, right? So you can tell it, I want to use next DNS. You could tell it, I want to use the um, cloud. Uh, was it Cloudflare? Yeah, Cloudflare. I want to use Google's DNS, whatever. So you could actually set your AdGuard instance up to use whatever DNS services you want, but you still have that additional control over what you want to block on your network specifically as opposed to what, you know, these external DNS providers will do. So, um, yeah, it's it, unfortunately, this is the world we live in right now, right? It, marketers are going to try and find ways to, to track you everywhere. Cause that's how, that's how they make their money. So at any rate, that was it. All right. Well, uh, we hope you've enjoyed this recursion episode about recursion, and, uh, you know, if you haven't already, maybe a friend like gave you a link or something, or, you know, you're listening on their device. So you can find us on wherever you like to find your podcast, uh, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher are probably the big three. Um, but you know, if you have a favorite podcast destination and we're not there, let us know, we will rectify that issue. Uh, and you know, if you haven't already, as Alan mentioned before, like we, we greatly appreciate those reviews. So you can find some helpful links. It's now plural at www.codingblocks.net slash review. Yep. And while you're up there, make sure you do check out the show notes. Like Joe Zach did a really good job of putting together the show notes for this particular episode. And, and I mean, we have all the links, the discussions, like just, just to be able to, you know, get your mind refreshed on what we talked about, be able to go Google and find some more information. Right. So um, definitely check out the show notes. And if you have any questions, be sure to or rants, oh, 
Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Jozak is back. Yeah, no, if you have any questions, rants, comments, whatever, definitely go check out our Slack channel. I think, did we say our Slack link is broken on our site? Yeah, I should fix that. Oh, uh, yeah. The, I think uh, I'll, I'll the look plugin we use yeah, he said not we been couldn't. updated. Yeah, it's years. not been updated. So I, we're going to figure out something there. But if if not, just go to, you know, uh, drop us an email at comments at coding blocks and, and we'll get you added. We, we don't like that approach, but um, in in the meantime, we don't dislike it. We don't Since dislike feet, it. I mean, something we'll see, we'll see it eventually. Yeah, exactly. We'll, we're we'll not in fast there. at emails. <laughs> As you now, it's your turn, Joe. <laughs> Or or not? I mean, really? Or not? I think I think he gave. He's done. Yeah, I think I think Joe. We broke Joe. Uh, Joe is crashing. I think he had a Stack Overflow, <laughs> and uh, we need to reboot Joe. If you didn't know, Joe's a robot. Um, I don't know if that made sense. You know, maybe you didn't. <laughs> All right, know that. so visit us at codingblocks.net. You, you can find show notes, examples, discussion. Oh, Joe's our our. Uh, we have some packet interruption there. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'm gonna go play Valheim. Oh, that looks cool. I saw that on, on Steam the other day. Is it really good? Yeah, you got to play with people, though. Okay. Uh, I don't know if I can do that. Uh, I don't play well with people. <laughs> uh, I have a persistent <laughs> server. I'll send you the info. Uh.